Well, good morning and welcome to Hudson Institute. I'm Ken Weinstein, President and CEO of Hudson Institute. Welcome to the Betsy and Walter Stern Center at Hudson Institute. And today is actually the 90th birthday of Wally Stern, our beloved uh, Chairman Emeritus, who has been so critical to this organization and uh, couldn't be up here without, without wishing Wally a very happy uh, birthday uh, from all of us here at Hudson who adore him. I'd like to welcome you to today uh, to our uh, panel discussion, our seminar on U.S.-China trade relations and challenges, past, present, and future. And this is sort of a unique event for us here at Hudson Institute. I am delighted to welcome the president uh, of the Center for China and Globalization, Yuya uh, Wang, Henry Wang, here at the Hudson Institute for what we hope will be a frank discussion on the growing trade tensions between our two countries and what needs to be done to help move the relationship forward to address trade imbalances. As China's opening to the world, as we know, which began in earnest economically with the Deng Xiaoping era and was followed by China's accession to the World Trade Organization, brought prosperity to hundreds of millions of people in China, turned China into a manufacturing hub, and uh, created this growing middle class in China, which has been incredible for global prosperity and uh, for um, uh, global development. But uh, as we, as numerous uh, U.S. presidents, and most notably the Trump administration, has noted in particular, we have yet to see China fully liberalize or open its markets to American investors. And uh, what we here at Hudson Institute have decided to do, given the uh, tensions on trade between uh, the U.S. and China, and this, these efforts were undertaken by our director of Chinese uh, strategy. Dr. Michael Pillsbury, the noted uh, veteran China watcher, the eminence grease in the Trump administration, and the author of a uh, very important uh, book, The 100-Year Marathon, a New York Times bestseller, widely read by key officials in the Trump administration, key members of Congress, and also widely read in China in both its legal and uh, uh, pirated uh, translations, I should note. Uh, the book is a, is a critically important book because it, it uh, explores the strategic impact of China's focus on its economic prowess, what it means for China, and what China's economic plans have been. Uh, and I should note that Mike's book really was the first to come out to, to make this warning very clearly at a time when people still had a much more positive view of China's economic development and what could globally call the intent of uh, Chinese leaders through its economic development. And Mike proposed this session, uh, proposed holding this event, and we agreed to do it. And we, uh, we meaning Hudson Institute, agreed to do it, uh, knowing that there are serious issues in the U.S.-China relationship, serious issues that need to be discussed, and, and issues that range from uh, patterns of intellectual property theft, uh, the role of heavily subsidized state-owned industries uh, tied in some cases to the People's Liberation Army, but also to other ministries, um, trade undertaken for strategic purposes at below market uh, uh, cost, um, and there's dumping of products. There's a long list of issues that uh, we're here to uh, discuss uh, on the American side. and. Uh, 
We do it here at a venue, Hudson Institute, where, as our, where our Chinese guests, and we're delighted to welcome you here, know that there is no better place in Washington to have this discussion, because we at Hudson Institute have been persistent critics of China's military. We view ourselves, first I should note, as friends of China and the Chinese people, and dedicated to the serious study of China, the serious analysis of China. But that being said, we have been persistent critics of China's military buildup of IP theft, of China's attempt to dominate 5G. We have been critics of Chinese, of Chinese, uh, uh, of, of what China has done through its state-owned enterprises. We have been defenders of, of, uh, of, of, of the of of, of human rights. Uh, we have focused on the Taiwanese model of democracy. I'm chairman of Radio Free Asia, and my work there in a personal capacity is, is well known. And um, we are also looking forward to welcoming uh, Senator Marco Rubio here on October 24th to keynote a conference we're doing with Freedom House on uh, Chinese influence operations in the United States. So I say all this not to be a rude host, but to just be absolutely transparent to uh, those we are hosting and to our audience uh, uh, to say that uh, we at Hudson Institute, uh, uh, are, we are tough on China. Uh, we are not like the other think tanks that, uh, are, that our guests normally deal with here in Washington, but we are committed to having an open-minded discussion with a leading Chinese think tank with whom we, we have disagreements on policy in the hope that together we can point the way towards a better trade relationship and a better relationship free of the illusions of the past. And that's our hope for the discussion today. And I want to welcome you for coming into the lion's den here at Hudson. And I should note on a, a personal note that uh, yesterday the White House announced President Trump's intent to nominate me to the Advisory Committee for Trade Policy and Negotiations. This is just an intent to nominate. But I mention this uh, simply to say that I'm speaking here in my own capacity. I am not yet a member of the uh, Advisory Committee for Trade Policy Negotiations. Uh, when the nomination is formal and hopefully approved, I look forward to working closely with Ambassador Lighthizer and his uh, team on its important work. So let me say that by way of general introduction. And at, at this point, let me, I will happily turn the microphone over to, uh, to uh, my esteemed colleague, uh, Dr. Michael Pillsbury, so he can introduce uh, Dr. Wang, the founder and president of the Center for China and Globalization. I really want to give you a warm Hudson Institute welcome. Thank you. I shake your head. I shake your head. <laughs> uh, thank you, President Weinstein. We have a kind of informal approach today. We're going to have two panels. First, uh, Dr. Wang Henry and uh, Mabel are going to give us, a, I hope the slides will work. They're going to give us a briefing on their report. Um, then the two panels each will have some period of question and answer from the audience. Um, the, the main point today is CCG, the short name for uh, Dr. Wang's think tank in China, which I visited. It's highly influential. They have uh, three uh, co-chairmen their, on their advisory council, I guess you would call it. One is a vice foreign, former vice foreign minister, He Yafei, one is the senior official who negotiated China's entry in WTO, uh, Long Chong Tu. Um, so his think tank is extremely influential in China. And he has prepared and released to us yesterday um, a report which is extremely constructive. 
he takes a look at the frictions, the disputes, and he makes China's case uh, in great detail. He cites the number of American companies who oppose the tariffs. He cites the number of American uh, witnesses who oppose the tariffs. It's very detailed, many footnotes to American media sources I had not seen. But that's not all. The second half of the report, he has more than 10 really specific negotiating offers. So how, could we re how do we discuss this report today? Not everybody has it. I'm going to bring up my agreement and mainly disagreement. I believe it's, there's not enough. It's an offer that if the Chinese government makes it, it could make President Trump very angry because it does not go very far in meeting all of his concerns. So it could be a disaster if President Xi Jinping takes the advice of Dr. Wang and CCG. But what is the good news? His think tank, his team that wrote this, about seven people, they had the guts in China to take on the issue and then make a case for some reforms and some changes. I think we have to applaud, I applaud Dr. Wong for that. Congratulations. <laughs> so we welcome you, but we also oppose some of the suggestions you're making. Uh, and I'm hoping on the panels we get into more details about these issues. Finally, he has three scenarios in the report that you and I discussed in Beijing. One I think we wanted to call the happy scenario, where in the near term, the trade disagreements are resolved satisfactorily. It's win-win, as China likes to say, and there's no escalation in tariffs, and there's no new Cold War. The second scenario in detail is about a fairly long Cold War. China does not take seriously Mr. Trump's demands, and there's 25% placed tariff on all Chinese uh, imports to America. Third possibility is the worst case of all. It's called, in China, it's called New Cold War. So the trade conflict continues, escalates, and it spills over into other areas so that the United States begins to adopt a policy toward China as President Reagan did with the famous NSDD 32 and NSDD 75, a little bit like what Truman did with NSC 68. And we're just in the first phase, we're in the first two or three years of a really serious US-China Cold War. A couple days ago, a famous Fox host, Henry Wong knows this, proposed to a million person audience on Fox, a complete economic boycott of China. Nobody laughed. This is taken as, it's a somewhat extreme, but it's the kind of thing being discussed now. So we want to be friendly, as Ken Weinstein said, but we also want the message to go back to Beijing. A lot of Americans are still very angry about a Chinese this trade practices uh, and deception. So I'm criticized in China, in the media, as a secret CIA agent who runs around trying to influence China. Henry receives the same treatment from some of our reporters that somehow he's with a covert influence operation in China. But actually, it's a good thing. It gets both of us more respect and we are listened to more. 
So Henry, I think you and Mabel want to do the briefing. I hope the slides work. So I really want to thank you for being courageous to come into the lion's den. <laughs> Just uh, see if the laptop works. works. Okay, Mr. President Ken Winston and Mr. Mr. Fusbury, uh, distinguished guests uh, we're going to have this morning, and uh, also we had the honor of uh, Mr. Minister Councillor Tian from Chinese Embassy as well, and his colleagues, and all the all the friends here. So it's really a, a great honor uh, to be here at Hudson, and I appreciate the uh, the uh, uh, the hosting of Hudson for CGG that. Uh, so we are here to uh, to bridge the gap, to to also to present our think tank's uh, uh, point of view, and uh, it's also attract two uh, uh, exchanges. And we've been visiting a number of think tanks. I think the the, the event uh, that we are uh, having here, that to really to present CCG's latest report on, on China-U.S. Uh, trade relations, is really uh, relevant. So once again, we we appreciate uh, uh, the hosting of Hudson us to uh, deliver this report, and also we have uh, uh, two excellent panels we're going to follow on that to discuss all those uh, issues at really at the uh, timing that is really uh, so crucial and so important. So uh, uh, once again, I, I appreciate this opportunity. So, so I would like to have uh, uh, Dr. Miao, uh, who is our Vice President of CCG, to, to present first part of that, and I will uh, uh, continue for the rest of it. Thank you. Mr. President Weston, Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to be here to introduce CCCG's report, China-U.S. Trade Relations and Challenge, Past, Present, Future, and Policy Options. Yes, uh, our report is divided into four parts. The first part is going to review 40 years of China-U.S. trade and economic relations. Second part is related to the development of U.S.-China trade conflict. It's about the current situation. Then uh, CCG forecast the future of U.S.-China trade conflict. Uh, finally, CCG put forward 10 recommendations to our current situation to the two countries' policymakers to deal with the current situation. This year, this year marks 40 years of uh, China's reform and opening up, and uh, 40 years since the establishment of uh, two countries' uh, diplomatic ties. And uh, in the past four decades, U.S. played a positive role in China's reform and uh, opening up. In the third plenum of the 13th CCP, Central Committee at the end of 1978 made the decision that China would reform and open it up to the world. And President Jimmy Carter decided to establish diplomatic ties with China on January 1st, 1979, and Deng Xiaoping visited the U.S. on January 29. In the same year, the U.S. granted China most favored nation status. In 1981, the Reagan administration created separate trade category for China to accept it from trade restriction applied for other communist countries. 
The Clinton administration granted China permanent normal trade relations ahead of China's WTO entry in 2001. The bilateral commercial relationship is mutually beneficiary. Since China joined WTO, U.S. exports to China have increased by 500%, far exceeding the 19% increase in U.S. global exports over the same period. By 2017, China has become the second largest destination for U.S. exports and the U.S. enjoyed a trade surplus in services of $53 billion over China. In 2017, the United States exported more goods to China than ever before, more than $127 billion. U.S. exports of goods to China have grown by 86% over the last decade, while exports to the rest of the world grew by only 21%. Cumulative FDI from the U.S. reached $82.5 billion with 68,000 companies set up in China. U.S. companies generate generate 5 billion, 500 billion in sales annually in China. Inflation in the U.S., which averaged 5.4% from 1963 to 1989, fell to just 2.5% from 1989 to 2015, in large part due to growing imports of consumer goods from China. In commercial Chinese production, save the average U.S. household 500, uh, 850 each year. U.S.-China two-way investment contributed $216 billion to U.S. GDP, supporting 2.6 million American workers. Chinese firms have cumulatively invested over $140 billion across 46 U.S. states, creating over 140,000 jobs. There are some examples of uh, Chinese companies investing in U.S. Like Wenxiang Group invested in nearly 30 factories across U.S., creating 12,500 jobs. Fuyao Glass announced last year that it was ready to increase its investment in its U.S. production facilities to 1 billion USD with thousands of more jobs opportunities offered to local residents. Uh, there are still some comparative advantage for U.S. and China. The U.S. has a comparative advantage in capital-intensive industries, while China's comparative advantage lies in labor-intensive sectors. Primary industry accounts for 8% of China's GDP and just 1% of the U.S. economy, while secondary industries make up 20% of China's economy and 12% in the U.S., in China, tertiary sector, sector makes up just over half of GDP, while this figure is 79% in the U.S. From this structure, we can see that China's economy is based on agriculture and, new, and manufacturing in contrast to the U, U.S., while services are the driving force of the economy. China and U.S. economic cooperation under the global value chain. 2011 OECD project shows that for all Chinese exports in electronics and optical, optical equipment manufacturing, domestic value-added share of gross exports is only 46%. 
In 2016, 77% of high-tech exports were manufactured by foreign invested enterprises. The case of Apple illustrates that assembling China accounts for only 3 to 6% of the 370 manufacturing cost of an iPhone X with the bulk of the value ended going to American tech giant. Morgan Stanley estimates that the U.S. firm's revenue exposure to China reached around 400 billion in 2017, about three times more than its exports to China. There are a few extensive people-to-people ties between China and U.S. For example, in the film of education, 350,000 Chinese students studying in the U.S. spent about 55,000 per person in 2016, contributing around 16 billion of revenue to the U.S. And in the field of tourism, the U.S. is the number four popular destination for Chinese outbound tourists in 2016. In the year long, three million Chinese tourists spend a total of 33 billion on their U.S. trips. So the rest of the report will be delivered by my present Wang Hui Yao. So please. Yeah, I'm going to the pause on that. That's right. Great. Uh, thanks again uh, for, for having this opportunity. So I think that uh, the report that actually uh, CCG uh, made is actually also out of a, a discussion we had in, uh, in Beijing uh, uh, last May, actually. We hope that we can have some uh, a, a Chinese perspective of looking at those, but also discussing with our American uh, colleagues on how we can uh, solve those issues. So, so those are the uh, 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 the, the the purpose of this uh, discussion. Actually, uh, we can see that actually the development of U.S.-China trade deficit, of course, is the is the hot issue on everybody's mind in the last several months, but almost five six months now. So the round of tariff exchanged, I think, has been you know escalating, and so there's a 25 percent tariff already uh, uh, is is having, and also. Uh, uh, 50 billion, 200 billion, whatever. So that actually is, is escalating. So it's ca- caused a lot of concerns, I think, in, in both countries and to the rest of the world. So, so this is really a, a key timing, I think, uh, at this moment that we, we exchange about those ideas, we talk about those uh, things, uh, particularly through the dialogue, through the uh, uh, think tank uh, channels, so that we, we, we avoid uh, uh, this... Uh, Really, the misunderstanding, but also enhanced understanding of, uh, of of both parties. So you can see that actually there's a, there's a lot of uh, concerns. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, China's concern for the, for the damage as well. We we would see you know the China uh, U.S. China trade co- uh, conflict is actually a loose loose uh, uh, to both countries. Uh, Dr. Pittsburgh mentioned about you know China wants to have a win win, but but actually you know if we continue, this will be a, a loose loose situation for both countries. Sometimes. <laughs> but, 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 but if it's loose, that uh, I think uh, both countries lose. I, I really hope that uh, uh, both China and U.S. wins. You know, so so that that'd be really great. But this this is also, I think this uncertainty will have headwinds on China's economic growth, 
and uh, a potential spillover to economic areas beyond trade. I mean, this is so probably uh, obvious. A negative impact on the world economy and global supply chain that we've been building in the last seven decades, actually, particularly in the last four decades. So, so I think there's a lot of concerns for the damage in China as well. But, but more precisely, because we, we've been also studying the, the response of, uh, of US uh, companies and, and industry groups, that we found that there's actually there's more concerns in the US uh, on these trade, uh, trade frictions. For example, the US Chamber of Commerce predicted their, the trade war will put uh, over a quarter million jobs at risk. The tax foundation said that the, tax, the trade war will have already lowered the US workers' wage by, by 0.6%. Reducing 365,000 uh, job opportunities, uh, so it's quite uh, quite uh, uh, quite a consensus. The National Association of Chemical Distributors said nearly 28,000 chemical distributors and suppliers' jobs would be eliminated because of high prices from this 200 billion dollar tariff. And Axos also reported that retaliation of Chinese tariff would affect 11 million American workers concentrated in the rural deep red, already struggling part of the. U.S., which is the precisely the, the Rust Belt uh, uh, state that President Trump wants to uh, to to revigorate, uh, and Peter's Institute, of course, also mentioned that uh, uh, the, the, even the short-term uh, trade war could lead to a private sector employment force of 1.3 million. And Moody's analysis is uh, 150,000 jobs would be lost uh, in the U.S. if the current trade tariff continues. So you can see there is a quite a widespread of a consensus. Uh, that across uh, all the industry board and, and companies. But also, if you talk about sectors, we can say that uh, agriculture sector, you know, uh, as, as we all know, the uh, US is one of the main export of soybeans, and that can be, uh, can be uh, at, at, uh, you know, at risk. Auto industry, of course, Ch uh, China now produces more cars in the United States. US auto industry has actually produced more cars in China than in the United States. And even Tesla announced they're going to have a 100% owned subsidiary in China. So, so but GM, Boeing, so, so you can see the industry uh, across industry has, has, has a lot of impact. And, and, you know, not to mention also in the high tech sector as well, that, that uh, uh, the uh, uh, company that will have suffered. So, so that's really, uh, you know, a, a very, very uh, 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 gloomy situation. And, uh, and I can see that, uh, uh, even Apple actually uh, think about that. Uh, they they mentioned the tariff on Chinese goods would increase the cost of U.S. corporation, uh, divert our resources, and disadvantage of Apple compared to foreign competitors. So the, the industry giant has actually like Intel, like Dell, HP, and, and all, all, all the high tech companies have, have a lot of uh, concerns. Uh, that is actually coming out of uh, U.S. industry leaders. So, so we can see that is a, a, a very obvious uh, situation that we're going to have. Uh, I would like to cite uh, the latest, actually, the, just out of a f this month, a fresh uh, figures. Uh, the impact on U.S. tariff on, on, on your business, that the, the survey had been done by Amcham China uh, uh, through uh, the, a large database of its companies, also Amcham Shanghai uh, as well. So, so if you, they will ask the impact of U.S. Tar tariffs on your business. Uh, almost half of that said, you know, uh, the U.S. would have uh, the added by uh, tariff, the uh, U.S. would affect them. Of course, they add on top of the Chinese ta Chinese tariffs on that, so so you can see it's quite a, quite a, a negative impact to the U.S. operations in China. You know, over almost half of that uh, agreed on that, and that's quite uh, quite a large number of of, of concerns uh, that we should look into. And uh, 
And furthermore, actually, the industry most impacted by, by this uh, uh, 50 billion and, and uh, 60 billion and 200 billion, whatever they have on a tariff, you know, machinery will be affected, electronic industry will be affected, automobile industry will be affected, agriculture, chemical, you know, healthcare, uh, and, uh, and all, the, all the other industries, and uh, aerospace, uh, electronics. So, so basically all of them, 80% of them will be uh, impacted. So that's quite a, quite a serious situation, uh, according to our uh, understanding. And, uh, and also that uh, uh, we can see the impact on business operations Again, according to the Amchan uh, China and Amchan Shanghai, that uh, you know increased the cost of manufacturing. Almost half of them uh, uh, says that we, we certainly do uh, de decrease the demand for the product. Of course, China is the biggest, uh, one of the biggest market, and that will be also impact on that. So, so it's quite a quite a, a wide ranging of uh, assessment uh, from both U.S. business committee in the U.S. and also in the business committee in China. Uh, have quite a big consensus on that. So, uh, so we have to probably look at that uh, uh, as well. Uh, and of course, on the domestic feedback on, on the tariffs, uh, even the, on, the, on the domestic, you know, you have a Congress, uh, uh, people actually, uh, you know, the, the Senate uh, of the, uh, by July 11, there was overwhelming majority of 88 to 11 uh, votes passed on non-binding motion to give Congress a, a a role in decision-making, pros and tariffs. So I think there's some uh, 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 also uh, feedback from Congress. You can see the the, the non-supportive of the tariff measures, and House actually uh, 140 House members wrote to a letter on to the President, uh, to the U.S. Uh, Commerce Secretary, uh, advising also against imposing tariffs. So a tariff is really a bad uh, a bad measurement to do that. And of course, trade associations, six of them, U.S. trade groups. Uh, launched a coalition called American for Free Trade, uh, composed of thousands of companies actually also saying that. There's a sub-national government actually on that. There's, there's, a, there's a companies, there's also in the, in the state and the municipalities have all actually uh, given these kind of uh, 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 complaints and, and uh, uh, calling for non-tariff uh, uh, measures to, to, to solve the problem. Uh, now, I would like to uh, uh, go to the, uh, the, the future uh, of U.S.-China trade conflict. We, uh, uh, we would have been uh, seeing that probably there's, you know, according to a framework of analysis, there's always three scenarios, of the good scenario, the, the, the median scenario, the, the bad scenario. So, so we'll, we'll always <laughs> we'll, we'll, uh, take this uh, 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 analytical approach on that. Uh, so you can see the, 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 the scenario of the, uh, of the uh, a possible outcome, you know, if we have the you know, best scenario, so then we should have the agreement reached, uh, the de-escalation, and then, so that's the ideal one, of course, uh, at least CCG is hoping for. So, so I think, yeah, this is the win-win for, for both US and China. So, and then we have a median scenario, and uh, whereas periodical escalation and de-escalation into the future, so that we can see it is affected but it's not uh, you know, uh, you know, devastating, uh, as we can see in the, the worst case scenario that where the escalation into a full-blown trade war, which is uh, nobody wants that, actually, or you know, wants to see that happen. So the first scenario, maybe I'll give a little bit of uh, uh, explanation on that, so th which means that two sides will reach agreement and subsequently hold uh, tariff measures. I think that we can see that the US-China history uh, that had witnessed the dispute all along 
but in the history of the last four decades, we have been always able to resolve them through negotiations and, and, and talks. So, so I, I can still see that both sides still express willingness to talk, uh, which I think is, is still in the, in the right direction. So given the uh, concerns on the farmers losing their job, given the, uh, 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 you know, there's a lot of uh, political uh, uh, feedback in, in, in US, I think you know, there, there's uh, quite a bit of a concern there as well, so that how can we solve that could be an issue as, uh, uh, that we can see. But also there's an there's a upcoming meeting on the G20 summit uh, in November, so we hope that uh, when both presidents meet, uh, that uh, we can pave the way for the further reaching agreement uh, through the, uh, the discussion of both, both uh, countries. So political motive also, as some people say, uh, political motive of the president in launching the tariff is maybe towards the, uh, will be subsidized uh, uh, after the midterm elections, and uh, uh, which, uh, you know, uh, we will have, be, President Trump will have to focus more on the domestic issues, and that those China-US uh, trade stuff will, will probably uh, subside uh, to some extent. So, so this, uh, for example, President Trump will be uh, more on the uh, infrastructure and how to uh, make America great again, then maybe focus more on domestic agenda rather than uh, those international ones. So, so we can see the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the outcome of this, and also the trade deficit. Uh, the, 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 the thing that we have a bit of optimism is that we already reached agreement in one of our talks. I think last time when, uh, when Vice Premier Liu He came to Washington, they already reached agreement. U.S. was asking for uh, $100 billion, uh, deficit reduction. China agreed to uh, 70 billion of that. So it's, it's quite a bit uh, close. And plus, China has uh, agreed to, uh, to purchase 250 billion uh, during President Trump's visit to China. So, so you, you, you can say that there's really uh, not a huge uh, difference in terms of cutting the trade deficit there. And then, of course, on the, on the, on the progress on the market access, China has been doing a lot of uh, uh, trade tariff reduction uh, lately. For example, China cut the auto import tariff by half uh, uh, just recently uh, by itself. And, uh, and also China has, uh, 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 on the 11 items uh, China has actually announced in, in April, China has actually, uh, is going all on those 11 items of, of, of deficit uh, trade and, uh, and tariff reductions. And also that's uh, uh, cutting a lot of uh, restricting regulatory in 22 sectors and, uh, and, uh, and also opened 100% ownership of a Tesla uh, plant in China. And also, some concerns like uh, made China 2025 actually still uh, was a, was a, a visionary uh, a plan by by the uh, Minister of Industry and Informa Information. So, so I think there's a lot of chance, as the President Premier Lee said, uh, welcome the foreign uh, participation. And uh, and also one of the things I think concerned the uh, uh, U.S. Uh, colleagues quite a lot is the uh, is the uh, forced technology transfer. I think that. Chinese government leaders have said again and again that they are not really uh, 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 that uh, agree on uh, forced technology transfer. And they, if anybody has that case, please tell the, uh, the authorities that they can they want to uh, uh, they want to work on that. And uh, so one of the 301 actually report uh, on the forced technology transfer uh, by the White House report, it was said that only 90% complained. And, 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 one, and two thirds of that uh, companies complain and, and identify Chinese business partners. So it's not an overall majority of that. It's only 90%. And then out of 19%, uh, two thirds said it was not the government, it was actually the business. So, so you can see that uh, uh, Chinese government has actually have a zero tolerance for uh, technology, uh, uh, forced technology transfer and has always said again and again that it's not allowed. 
So, uh, so I think that, so the philosophically, there's no difference in terms of uh, IPR issues and the full stack of transfer between the US leadership and Chinese leadership. I think they are, they are talking the same philosophy and the principles. So, uh, so, so I think that, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 there's, 20, there's, uh, uh, there's also 28 billion paid for foreign property rights, a 50 time jump since China jumped up into So, So China is actually doing a lot of things that IPR duty system as well. So there's China set up a three uh, intellectual property protection core in China and, uh, and just handling uh, these kind of uh, uh, you know, complaints by foreign companies. Actually, the, the foreign company complaints uh, of the IP violation cases in China, the win cases for foreigners are about 80%. So it's a, a vast majority of them, if they complain to China's intellectual property core, they will win uh, uh, largely in, the, in those situations. So, uh, so you can see that uh, uh, you know, we've, been, we've been thinking there's a lot of common ground in this first scenario. And, uh, and Chinese uh, 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 customer bought 120 million cars imported from the US. Now with the, with the trade sanctions, now Germany become the largest export of cars to China now. So, so that uh, it's really uh, you know, hard to see that US has built up this uh, uh, manufacturing base and has also established the channels to export the vehicles to China to be affected by this trade war. So, so, so uh, uh, also there's a research actually done by Tsinghua University estimate that increase of 3 million auto uh, imports would result in US $100 billion reduction to the deficit and revive the auto industry. So, so you see there's a lot of good things that if two countries can, can work together and, uh, and, uh, and also China is reducing the tariff on, on importing US cars. And uh, of course, uh, US and 20 billion deals offered by President Trump, uh, and, and that has actually a lot of natural gas, energy, and so there's a lot of areas that, uh, that we can work together, uh, and uh, the, the, the particularly in those areas of, of strong sectors and re energy resources and uh, uh, all, the, all the benefit that if we reach agreement that we can have. The second scenario, of course, uh, that we can see is the, the companies like to linger into the future, turning into a new normal probably uh, in the bilateral relations. And in the next few years, we'll probably see a periodical escalation alternate with times of con con consolidation and rounds of threats and talks. So, so that's something that's uh, it's probably uh, uh, happening, but uh, it's, it's definitely not as good as the, the first scenario, which is uh, not, no good. And, uh, and we can see that uh, uh, this, uh, uh, we, we have the uh, China and the US both uh, 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 work on, the, on those issues, uh, 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 zigzag, and uh, so, so, so this is actually uh, the things that are probably uh, happening uh, already now, but, uh, but we hope that we will get back to the first scenario. But nonetheless, I think China's drive, China's own drive to deep its uh, reform and opening up is, is, uh, is another de-escalating factor, because China wants to do reform, regardless uh, uh, other, others' uh, opinion, because China, for its own sake, it's the 40th anniversary of this year, and it's, they want to do it uh, for, for China's own sake. Uh, sake. So, so that would be really to have the domestic uh, reform and opening up continuous, and that also a, a positive contributing factors. The, uh, I think that the, 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 the third scenario which uh, we analyze, which is the worst scenario, uh, of course, and uh, which nobody wants to see, I, I suppose, and uh, is escalating in the old, old trade war. And uh, uh, it will only produce negative impact 
on two countries. So, uh, and also disrupted, uh, disrupted the global value chain and, and also you know, slowing down, even stop the growth of the, uh, the much-needed global, global growth. And uh, so, so this is really, uh, there's a lot of uh, data on that already. Uh, so if the trade war continues, it could cause considerable shocks to, the, to, to both Chinese and U.S. economy. And Morgan Stanley has, has uh, estimated that uh, there will be 0.3-0.4% point losses for U.S. economy growth. And uh, Moody, inflation would be hosted by a tenth of a percentage point uh, by this time next year if, if those tariffs uh, materialize. So impact on U.S. capital market. Uh, the, the bull market probably will, will, have, a, will have a stop. Uh, uh, you know, if the trade war continues, and U.S. company uh, uh, listed companies will, will also suffer, and uh, U.S. household will likely to pay more for buying Chinese household, and uh, uh, there's a collateral damage to our both global value chain and disrupt Asian economy within the supply chain. I heard companies of, of course, both not only U.S. and China but the rest of the world, and and also for global economy is really uh, uh, dangerous. Uh, uh, scenario that we cannot afford to see that. So, finally, I would like to touch on the on the uh, recommendations by our think tank. Actually, so we have outlined quite a few, and uh, so the the first recommendation is that uh, to build on the agreement that already uh, reached uh, between China and and the U.S. Already, through, we had a, quite a few rounds of negotiations, so we should build on that and uh, and uh, to continue to to, to discuss uh, through dialogue and sensible discussions. Uh, so that we can find new ways of, of, of uh, 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 tapping to the potential of the, both countries of the, uh, of the market, of course, particularly the market in China is the biggest market, and also the e-trade. China and the U.S. are the largest e-trading nations, and that is a new area of growth as well for, for both China and the U.S. So this is the area that I think we can, we can work on. The second uh, recommendation is that we should probably forge a new bilateral agreement on intellectual property rights as well. As, as uh, Chinese uh, uh, government uh, has also emphasized that maybe through WTO, through all those channels, there's always a way to, 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 to look on this. China actually is already uh, does that by itself, setting up intellectual property courts and strengthening the uh, uh, inspection of the market uh, bureau. So those are the new areas that I think that we can uh, already have so that we can build on that as well. Uh, the third recommendation is that we should increase the opportunity for U.S. company in China made uh, 2025. I think there's some, there's a, uh, some quite a bit concerns on that, but actually, uh, Chinese uh, government also mentioned again that it's welcome U.S. companies, European companies, to participate in the 2025. It's it's not a, a, a casting a stone. This is still uh, evolving and. Uh, the, it's not like a 30 to 5 years plan that is budget allocated, things are already undertaken. So it's still visionary. I think uh, there's quite a bit of a chance, as Premier uh, uh, Lee has said, welcome foreigners to participate and to uh, get involved. And uh, so uh, the, uh, the fourth recommendation is that we should seek further tariff reductions through bilateral negotiations and, and, and re-engage BIT talks. China and the US has already uh, done the BIT talks for, for, for many times, actually almost conclude that during the last administration. So, so we should work on that continuously and trying to uh, work on that to, 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 to get the result, even maybe getting the free trade talks uh, in the future, as, as, as US is now talking with uh, EU and Japan. And uh, so we should probably do that. And US should also uh, probably re re rely on this uh, re reform and uh, relax 
on this CVS review, which I think it's preventing Chinese investment into U.S., and uh, which is no good for if, if we cannot in, uh, increase the investment exchanges between our two countries. So uh, uh, number five is the, that uh, recommendation we could uh, suggest is build on the foundation of the domestic reform that China's already had to rebalance the Chinese and the U.S. economy uh, so there's a way to achieve the uh, uh, trade uh, balance. I think there's a st structural problem in both countries. We need to address that. But the U.S. savings is, is quite low. China needs to stimulate its domestic consumptions. So we have a lot of things to do on both countries uh, to put our uh, uh, more, more, more effectiveness into our economy so that we can have a better uh, reform, that we can better uh, fit each other on, the, on those uh, trade issues. Uh, the, the sixth recommendation is that update the way the side of U.S. trade is measured and accurately reflect the value divided by each side. I think this is also a, a quite a big concern uh, on, 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 the, on the business community and, and for, for the think tanks because the, the calculation we are using now is really based on the 20th century. Now the service trade with China, which U.S. has a huge surplus with China, is not calculated. For example, there's a 3 million tours uh, from China tour, tour United States spend uh, uh, you know, 30 billion and, uh, and things like that it was not calculated. Also, the patent fee paid by Chinese company to the U.S. is not counted. So there's a variety of, of uh, trade sectors, which is the U.S. has a huge surplus, is not calculated into that. So we should probably reform that to have a better reflection of the trade figures. Uh, the last two, two or three recommendations is that the seven is the expand the cooperation in infrastructure and exploit the create and sign a U.S. infrastructure investment fund. President Trump announced that the U.S. is going to revigorate re, 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 this infrastructure, announced about one trillion uh, plan for, for the infrastructure uh, project, but we haven't seen really much growth on that. So China has actually benefited its uh, 40 years uh, growth on the infrastructure in the last four decades. There's a lot of things that we can share and we can contribute to each other in terms of making uh, those infrastructure works better for, for, for both countries. So I think that... Uh, uh, those areas that could be further uh, continues. And also, as I said in the last, uh, uh, last recommendation, that also tourism, China can increase. You know, right now it's about 3 million, we can have 5 million, we can have more tourists coming to the United States to have a good enough business for airlines, restaurants, hotels. So there's a, there's, a, there's a big potential. China has a 100 million uh, tourists touring around the world. It's only 3 million coming to the United States. So there's a, there's a lot of things that we can do better on that. And uh, also that uh, China, and U.S. can work together to, to reform WTO. I mean, that's uh, China already said it's uh, it's white paper published uh, uh, two days ago, and I think uh, China and the European has already uh, uh, worked into that direction. And I think WTO is a, is a, is a trade uh, 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 platform for the last four decades, for the last seven decades actually, and uh, it's it's benefited everybody. Of course, it, it can should be reformed, and I think that's. Uh, uh, for China and the U.S., the two largest economies in the world, should work together to, to work on to make this uh, uh, platform even more efficient. And, uh, and of course, uh, uh, our last uh, 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 recommendation is also to strengthen the Sino-U.S. cooperation between provinces and states. We understand we have a lot of governors visiting China. Uh, the, the mayor of Chicago was visiting China, signing a five-year cooperation. There's a lot of uh, potential between the state and, and the provinces between the two countries. So we should really, uh, on those levels, particularly those heat, hot heat in the Midwest and uh, states, which China has a lot of investment there, uh, we should continue the cooperation. And, and finally, we should really also develop the track to dialogue. Uh, I think that the, the one that we're having right now here at uh, Hudson, 
is one of the examples that we should have more of this, and uh, it needs the wisdom and, uh, and ideas from uh, think tanks of both countries to really find a solution and recommendation uh, to both governments. And uh, so, so we, we should probably also focus, you know, not on the tariff, uh, tit for tat, this kind of a narrative. We should think about, the, you know, how we can benefit and how we can keep the world uh, in prosperity and in, have another, uh, you know, four decades of uh, continuous growth between uh, US and China and, and the rest of the world. So, uh, so I think I'm going to conclude that. And the final thought is that uh, the two economy are really uh, US and China, which I mean intertwined uh, in a globalized world. And they, in, they have in fact constituted a single community of shared interest. So US and China are, are really a, a, a big community of, of shared interest. And that is un, unseparable and it's like a husband and wife, you cannot really, you can quarrel, but it's hard to get divorced. So, so I think that is really a way of China-US relation. Although China middle class will reach 600 million in the next five, 10 years. Uh, so it's twice of the population of the US. It's going to be the largest uh, market probably in the world. So are US ready, you know, after four decades of hardworking China to abandon this market for the US business? You know, that's really a hard question, I think, for, for everyone to think about. And also China now is going to have more consumption power and have buying more US products. And really, uh, it's really good for both those countries. And finally, I think the trade issues should not fall into the, uh, to the strategic misjudgment for both countries. Because uh, uh, we should really uh, think about, you know, we have the 70 years of peace and prosperity in the last, relatively in the last seven decades. So we should not fight in between the number one and the two economy of the world. We should really work together to make the world more peaceful and prosperous in the, in the next seven decades. Thank you very much. You want to have American go next or more Chinese speakers? Whatever. You know, I think we have a panelist. Thank you. I hope you were not disappointed. Henry has some very specific uh, recommendations for the for the two governments to consider. Uh, you left two or three of your best ideas out, actually, that uh, China should form a kind of CFIUS type uh, committee to mm -hmm. help protect American companies mm -hmm. and make sure American companies in China are treated well. Uh, I thought that was mm -hmm. a good idea. Um, you left out another idea of forming, it's in your report, of forming a, a sort of new agency in China that looks into intellectual property theft and protection of uh, They already have that. Rights. Yeah, we could work on that. Yeah. So I can't, I would try to count, Henry, how many proposals you have in here. I think it's really at least 12. Mm. So if we were both back in the government, if you were back in the Commerce Department in China and I were back somewhere, we would, try to, we would try to focus on the negotiating points, right? That would be the approach. I'm, I hope the panel is going to think this way. America, the China, American side, back in early May, put forward 24 points, and they were divided into eight sections, and somebody leaked it to Bloomberg News, so this is still online. The Chinese side also leaked it to WeChat, Americans complained, we know this was a private paper given to you, and Chinese side said, well, this is accident, you know, and took it down from WeChat. But everybody in China knows the 24 points the Americans demanded, and they attacked it. They said, this is humiliation 
This is an opium war, boxer expedition. We cannot possibly agree to any of these 24 points. So the news today is a CCG report written by eight or nine people. You are examining constructively some of the 24 points. So I have to thank you for that. And today you didn't mention opium war or <laughs> boxer expedition. Another big word sometimes used by Chinese embassy here is defamation. These allegations are defamation of China. When you proposed new agencies or you focused on the new courts, you are constructively replying to the American criticisms. So, but I have to warn you, I told you yesterday, we on our panel today, besides our two Hudson scholars, I wanted to invite a secret weapon to help American side. <laughs> this secret weapon was a President Trump's campaign advisor on trade. He was in the New York Trump Tower working on trade in the transition team, maybe two seats down from me. And he's joining the re-election campaign for 2020 for President Trump to win again on the trade issue. And he writes many articles, including the recent one saying China ignored the WTO decision saying China must let MasterCard, American Express, and the Visa be used in the whole Chinese market. China said, yes, fine, we will implement, and then didn't do it. In the meantime, Chinese uh, interests developed the world's <coughs> biggest credit card. It's now the world's biggest credit card everywhere. So this man is in the front row here, Curtis Ellis. I think he wants to become your friend, maybe not, maybe at least have lunch with us. But I hope he will get a chance to ask a question of our panel, if with your permission, so you have authentic uh, Trump voice speaking. Okay, who goes first, Aparna? We have, Henry, we have a new American strategy called Indo-Pacific Strategy, and we renamed, uh, we renamed uh, India Pacific Command. You think we should all just sit down? What do you think? Okay, we follow Chinese guidance. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> what I mean is that as a panel, you can probably okay, fine. Dialogue here. We're all mic'd up. <laughs> so the Indo-Pacific strategy. Yeah. President Trump mentioned this many times on his trip. Uh, China seems to be welcome to join, but China has attacked the Indo-Pacific strategy as encirclement of China. What do you think? Uh, good morning. I'd like to first start by thanking uh, Dr. Pillsbury for inviting me to speak here today. Um, my remarks will, as Dr. Pillsbury mentioned, focus primarily on the geopolitical aspect uh, of the discussion, the rise of China, U.S. Indo-Pacific strategy, and how India plays into it. Um, American grand strategy for the Indo-Pacific or Asia-Pacific since the end of the Second World War centered on creating an Asian economic, diplomatic, and security architecture that ensured stability and security in the region. American preeminence was meant to ensure a rules-based liberal order, which opposed ideological dominance or arbitrary assertions of territorial claims, and instead promoted an e economic growth and development for the region. The economic and military rise of China over the last two decades poses a challenge to American preeminence. China is gradually creating a new Asian order with Chinese primacy at its heart. U.S. strategy 
has therefore been one of renewed engagement with its partner and allies from India, Japan to uh, ASEAN and others to construct a configuration that will be able to counter this. Among Asian countries, India has consistently viewed China's expanding influence with suspicion. Partly, this is a function of historical experience. India engaged uh, China as an Asian brother from 49 to 62, only to become a victim of its aggression over a border dispute. Since 1962, India has noted China's efforts to build closer ties with its neighbors in an attempt to encircle India, as well as Chinese efforts to lay the groundwork for military and naval bases across the Indian Ocean region. With a population of more than 1 billion, India is also the only country with sufficient manpower to match that of China. Thus, India is central to the Indo-Pacific security architecture as well as um, the economic and diplomatic architecture that the United States aim to, aims to set up for the region. Um, Indian leaders have always seen their country as one that will play a role on the global stage, especially Asia. And the belief in India as an Asian leader is deeply ingrained. Um, India's antagonistic relationship with its northern neighbor um, has multiple dimensions. There's a border dispute, uh, there's a disagreement over Tibet, but there's also an economic dimension. For the last two decades, the two countries um, have strong economic ties. Um, however, the, um, India perceives um, the growing Chinese economic and military might in South Asia and Indian Ocean as detrimental to Indian interests. Um, India views it as a string of pearl strategy designed to primarily provide China an advantage in any potential conflict and leverage in negotiations over disputes. Uh, New Delhi is also extremely wary of Chinese bases and ports in the Indian Ocean, from Hambantota in Sri Lanka to Gwadar and Jiwani in Pakistan, <coughs> as well as potential bases in Maldives and Djibouti. New Delhi views the Belt and Road Initiative as a continuation of Chinese uh, strategic, uh, more as a strategic uh, policy and not an economic uh, policy. In Pakistan, China has invested over $50 billion for development projects through a combination of readily available loans and gifts. Uh, China has created a strategic network across large parts of Asia and Africa and Latin America uh, and in many cases, this huge quantum of lending is designed to lure nations into a debt trap, leaving them forever beholden. Um, China has also, over the last two decades, deepened its activities in the Indian Ocean. This built military bases, or potential military bases, uh, secured access to ports and islands, and even sent in its submarines into a region that India sees as its sphere of influence. Um, to counter these strategies, India has built deeper relations with countries like Japan, South Korea, the ASEAN, and the United States. Um, India has in recent years promoted the idea of being a security provider in the Indian Ocean. Um, India has deepened defense cooperation with countries in ASEAN, uh, the Pacific, from Mauritius to Seychelles, from Dukum in Oman to Sabang in Indonesia. India also understands the need to build infrastructure both within India, but also in its immediate neighborhood. Uh, and therefore, in Delhi prefers Tokyo as a partner, um, and so the India, Japan, Asia, uh, Africa growth corridor is, is seen as a counter to providing all nations with alternatives. Um, in April of this year, Japan, United States, and India agreed to collaborate on infrastructure projects 
in South and Southeast Asia. And the recent announcement just two days ago about the United States revamping OPIC into US International De Development Finance Corporation uh, with an investment of almost $60 billion towards infrastructure could also uh, play a big role. Um, India, Japan, the United States do agree on an open, inclusive Indo-Pacific, which upholds a rule-based liberal international order. Um, and as the world's largest democracy, a multicultural society with a growing military heft, India does have the potential uh, to be an American partner in the region. I will stop there now. Thank you. Thank you. You didn't mention the South Asia initiative here at Hudson. So um, we have a South Asia and India program almost for four years. Um, both of the, our experts are here today, me and then Ambassador Hakani. you'll listen to him on the second panel. We focus on uh, economic issues, on foreign and security policy, um, and we bring out a, period, a, a weekly newsletter. We have a separate blog which actually posts uh, contributions from people around the region, and we have a number of books on India, Pakistan, um, and foreign policy. So if Henry, if Dr. Wong invites us from Hudson to go to his think tank in Beijing, are you willing to go on the delegation to Beijing? Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay, who you want to go next? <laughs> you want to? Sure. Henry, you decide. No, no, no. Okay. Yes, thank you very much for the uh, opportunity. Uh, Dr. Wang and Michael, as well as the, the Institute. Uh, I became aware of Hudson Institute a long time ago uh, because I lived in mid-Hudson area and I taught there for quite a few years. I thought, wow, are you guys located in New York or mid-Hudson area? I turned out to be Washington, D.C. And later on, my daughter actually interned here for, South, for the Africa program. Uh, she's from, she was from Smith College as a student. Um, and in looking also further, I, you know, Hudson Institute has been really prominent in my, you know, understanding of uh, the ideology behind Hudson, that is libertarianism. Um, I actually became aware of it because my president, past president at Chapman University uh, is a libertarianist. And people say this, 1% in American population, 1% uh, of American population believes in libertarianism. What is libertarianism? Well, based on some faculty members who I know, uh, they actually treat Lao Tzu as the founding father of libertarianism. <laughs> Americans, would you true, Michael? Is that true? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and I think that, you know. Associated mainly with Cato Institute. Oh, Cato. You, you haven't confused have Cato been. with Hudson, have you? <laughs> okay, all right. Um, but anyways, <laughs> I, I, I think um, I might have uh, made that mistake. <laughs> uh, but, but I think uh, certainly this is related to free trade. Uh, Americans believe in free trade. Most presidents believe in free trade. I recently read an article in Chinese. It's called Global Personalities. They had a huge survey of presidents from Wilson to President Trump. All of the presidents were uh, surveyed about their beliefs about free trade or against free trade. Uh, Wilson, of course, was an architect of free trade, and uh, Roosevelt was the one who made it happen. And, uh, and of course, Bill Clinton was well known for uh, accepting China into WTO. Uh, 
However, they highlighted two presidents uh, who actually, um, uh, one of them was Hoover, President Hoover, uh, uh, Her Herbert Hoover, uh, who was doing exactly what President Trump is doing. Uh, and that led to the uh, world economic crisis in 1929. Uh, and later on, of course, we are at this turning point of history. Uh, and I, I believe that the, the current administration of the United States is waging the largest trade war ever in the history of mankind. And with the threat of adding more to double it, almost double it, and put in tariffs on every dollar uh, of the goods sold by China to the United States. Uh, and you know, it's interesting that as an as a educator myself, studying intercultural communication, I received education in, in, in China, uh, English education back in the 80s, and I became a professor, and currently I also have a joint appointment, uh, both in the United States and China, and, and keep traveling back and forth just to make sure that I'm really well informed on both fronts. And it's indeed that the world is being reversed, and people have to make sense of it in that uh, somehow, uh, on this side of the world, uh, is the replication of some kind of a boxer movement taking place. And maybe the, the, the leaders of the boxer movement just come from this town, out of this town. Uh, I know boxer movement started in Shandong, but not in Beijing, but it kind of led to the, 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 you know, D.C. area, I mean, Beijing area. Uh, that is to build walls, walls against Mexico, and also the, the wall about uh, regular cultural exchanges. Uh, and I, I've received education in the civil rights tradition. And I believe that communication is so vital, exchanges are so vital uh, for the... Uh, uh, peaceful, uh, you know, relationship between the United States and China during the past four decades. And now we were suddenly at this point, we had to think about, are we going back to the old days when there was that so-called MAD? You know, MAD is mutually assured destruction. Doctor student of UCI and I, and by the way, he actually served as an intern, an assistant for Professor Peter Navarro. Uh, I was in the same. I, I'm from the same town. Uh, however, he wasn't. He was never invited to a UCI China talk by his own colleagues. UCI is University of California at Irvine. Is that what I don't teach is? there, but that's what you mean yes, by UCI. Right. Okay. Yes, correct. Yes. Uh, but he interned for him. He actually, he and I, uh, he, he was born and raised an American, you know, from Ohio. And uh, we wrote an op-ed, decided to say, hey, you know, are we trying to repeat the MAD or MAG? Our concept of MAG is mutually assured gains. From MAG, from MAD to MAG. Can we make it happen? Or are we trying to repeat the same kind of a mad situation. I think we're intelligent enough. Uh, however, I have a, a point to make about uh, China studies. 
currently that um, I believe that knowledge about China needs to be really updated. I'm fluent in both languages. I'm fluent with both cultures. I try to keep up every day. I try to read all kinds of news outlets, uh, including tabloids in both countries, in both countries. And I come to the conclusion that really the world is changing so much. United States are producing so much information, and China is beginning to produce so much information. Many of, much of them is really scholarly. And of course, including President Xi Jinping's think tank to produce so much thought, systematic thought. You know, people like David Shamble cannot catch up with the, with the knowledge, with the new knowledge generated. Uh, and I think, you know, somehow our scholars are falling behind. Scholars like us, think tank people, are falling behind. Uh, why? Because we have eight-hour work, five days a week, right? And then regular time, we, we, we play sports, we enjoy our free time. But the world doesn't work like that. The real world is day and night going on, and you have to keep up. Otherwise, you get lost. And this is what I conclude with, uh, with uh, you know, think tank people and scholars and students of U.S.-China relationship or globalization itself. That is, we have to figure out a way to share information on both fronts. But somehow, somehow, currently, we don't have that much communication taking place. And this is pretty sad. Not much. So there, therefore, I treasure this opportunity, hopefully to really, just like Dr. Wang suggested, that we really need to build a mechanism of communication, besides government to government, uh, you know, negotiations, uh, including India too. Uh, we just really need to build, a, a, you know, a mechanism of exchange of information. Uh, and you know, Australia has created this term called new sinology. Germany has created this concept of new sinology. They find a way to study China on its own terms. I know there was a split in the traditional. You know, there was Sinology in European tradition. But later on, the United States created this idea of, of China studies, primarily, uh, you know, politics, economy, but more of a uh, liberalizing China on the ideological, you know, liberal ideological order. But I think we need to, at this point, China is really beginning to charge its own waters uh, and, and also trying to make it uh, more inclusive. What I would try to say is that I call, China used to be well known for a trinity of three religions. Are you aware of this? I'm sure you're aware, right? Taoism, Confucianism, and uh, Buddhism. Uh, you know, if you're in office, you're, you're a Confucianist. If you're out of the office, you retire, you are actually a, a Taoist. If you're on the verge of death, <laughs> Buddhist, right? So Chinese are very very flexible. And I came to the conclusion, I said, look, you know, one philosopher whose name is, uh, he's from originally from Nankai, he said something like, uh, he actually has said this, Ma Huan Zhong Ti Ma Huan means Marxism as the spirit or the soul of contemporary Chinese politics. That's his ideal, right? He actually articulated this concept in the early 1990s. Uh, 
Fang Keli is his name. He's a well-known retired professor of philosophy from Academy of Social Sciences. And the Zhong team is Chinese learning as the source of meaning and identity. Xi Yong means Western ideas, so we learn, we open up and uh, absorb. And this is, I think, is the uh, ideological sources of Xi Jinpingism, if, if, you, don't, if you don't mind. He, he's actually trying to draw upon all of these three. The reason there is this because I remember when I first came here, I was 92. When I went back to China, I heard people say, mainstream economists. I said, who are the mainstream economists? He said, those people from Chicago, from you know, students from Freeman. I suddenly was, in other words, the party was losing grip on, the, on their own ideology. Uh, and that means would lead the chaos, uh, political instability. And so uh, and just think about this, that there was overproduction, over overcapacity. What happened, what caused the overcapacity? It was the free market, it was without any regulations at all. And you know what, in the socialist country, there was economic crisis, right on the I spot. Have ask, I have to ask you a question. I'm gonna conclude. To conclude, yeah. maybe help you. In Chinese culture, uh, if Dr. Henry Wong and uh, the vice president of CCG, uh, Mabel, have made a long presentation that they have a nine-person team produce this presentation, uh, I praise the details they gave about the 14 proposals. In Chinese culture, you have just completely ignored their presentation. Oh. You didn't say anything about the 14 points. You didn't say anything about their diagnosis. Okay. In Chinese culture, that means you do not agree with their report. <laughs> no, no, no. That's, that's it's, actually... It's called the Li Mao Shang de Juju. Light refusal. So do I understand you correctly? You oppose <laughs> this report. No, I'm not opposing it. I'm you actually... Ha you, haven't in, read, you haven't read I it. Did read, I read did read them, of course. Is there anything you agree in this report? I agree. Is this almost. panel, Richard's next... We're discussing this remarkable report. Them. But, I, but I was Do you about to say, Do you completely agree with Not everything? completely, 100%. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I listed all the recommendations. It turned out that all of those recommendations are actually the same recommendations as Dr. Wang. So I didn't want to repeat that. I wanted to provide this more of a theoretical, you know, uh, intellectual observation of what's, what, what, what happens. What so you're not do. filibustering. You're, <laughs> you're here to support Dr. Wang's report, right? You, you agree with this. I agree with this, and I agree. Remember, mutual gains is the idea behind these okay. suggestions, these recommendations. So I'm providing more of an intellectual, I would say, a theory behind this. <laughs> this is what I really mean. Uh, and also, that also relates to the Chinese ideology. You want to give five minutes to of the panel member? He's just a few here, minutes. Um, he, it's not centrality. You're kind of taking up his time. I hope you don't feel criticized by my remarks. <laughs> okay. Uh, yes, go ahead. Sure, and I'm just, I will just make a, a short comment because I understand we're running out of time and I really, we do want to discuss the interesting report with Well, I want to know if humanitarianism, I mean, sorry, what no. is it? Uh, so thank you. Libertarianism, is that the motto of Hudson Institute? I thought we were for democracy. <laughs> I will pass, we have the president of Hudson here. I'll let him speak. <laughs> I'm gonna uh, just wanna thank everybody for coming. Thank you for allowing me to participate. 
Um, I have a, the program I run here at Hudson is focused on, uh, it, it addresses trade somewhat. It's focused on keeping uh, nuclear materials and weapons away from other countries and non-state actors. So I was just going to touch on two points that are very topical in the news. Uh, and, and, the, uh, and the first one would be the uh, recent sanctions on the Russian arms sales to China, which have, uh, been, uh, were announced last Friday and have re received the Chinese response. And then very quickly, the events in the UN Security Council today where President Trump is making a presentation on, on basically what I, on this, this whole topic of limiting the spread of weapons of mass destruction. Um, the first, and this is more a question to the experts here, I was a bit surprised by the sharpness of the, Ru the Chinese reaction to the sanctions uh, that were announced on the Ru Russian arms sales. Um, and these are related to legislation which President Trump didn't want, but has implemented uh, as, as required by law. Uh, to uh, punish or counter America's adversaries through sanctions. Um, and they were applied on Friday to China's Equipment Development Department, which is the main importer of foreign military technology. Uh, the law requires these sanctions for any significant transactions involving Russia's intelligence or arms uh, sale. And I think that it was almost inevitable that China was going to be uh, touched by these sanctions. It was the first country that purchased some very advanced Russian systems, the S-400. Um, China doesn't uh, buy weapons from the United States or, or, or other Western countries. So some of the struggles we're having, whether it's applied these to India, Turkey, don't really apply. Um, and the Russia-China defense relationship has been very uh, destabilizing, will come even more so to many of the American goals in India, with respect to South Asia, with respect to uh, Japan, with respect to other allies. So I was kind of surprised by how sharply the Chinese reacted. They called the ambassador, which I might have expected, but they also stopped the, they recalled their uh, chief Navy person who was attending an international conference here and suspended military ties. And they didn't even do that for some of the Taiwanese arms sales. So I'm a bit puzzled on that, why it provoked such a strong reaction. And a bit concerned, because one of the things I think we've seen in the trade area is that even as we've gotten into this struggle over tariffs and trade. And, and you mentioned mutual assured destruction, the idea that uh, if, if, if you countries wouldn't go to uh, actual conflict of war and the major, using major nuclear weapons because they would be knowing they would be destroyed in return because the other side couldn't, could assuredly destroy them. So in the China-U.S. economic relationship, you might say it's mad again, but mutually assured depression. If we go too far down this line, we're both going to suffer. But so far, we've kept the, the security cooperation in the trade area pretty well protected. I mean, I think that both China and the U.S. in the past decade have made a lot of progress in preventing the diversion of uh, WMD-related materials to non-state actors. I mean, there were problems with earlier Chinese behavior with respect to Pakistan and so on. I think that's been improved. Um, we've managed to, the, to uh, develop a joint center where we're training uh, Chinese and other international experts in, in South Asia on non-proliferation uh, and nuclear security issues. We've um, and work together to, to monitor the, the exports that are going from China to the United States and other countries to make sure that they're not uh, carrying anything dangerous in that regard. Um, and there's a lot of joint declarations and cooperation in the IAEA and so on I don't want to get into. Now, there's still differences on Korea and Iran, even as we're cooperating in some dimensions with respect to that. And we want to 
work on that further. But I really think it's important to preserve this cooperation because given the what looks to be an ongoing Russia-U.S. tensions, I think it's really uh, important that China and the U.S. continue to work in to perhaps fill the gap that's going to be weakened by that, uh, that stalemate. I mean, China, I think, can play even a more important role in, in leading some of the initiatives, such as the, the uh, global initiative to counter nuclear terrorism and so on. I'm, I'm happy to go into this more detail, but I think we all really want to discuss this really, this really interesting report. Richard, thank you for bringing that up because it adds a little ammunition to the third scenario, which I called the new Cold War, that the, here is a channel that the U.S. and China are trying to establish between our joint staff and their joint staff. For this sanction, which, as you say correctly, is required by our law, the Chinese are stopping the channel from being created. It's supposed to start today. Uh, then the other Chinese reaction, I agree with you completely, to pull back a delegation that's here, talking about sensitive military matters, it's really quite shocking. And the message being sent feeds the narrative that the Chinese are the enemy. This is how they treat us. So it, I think our third scenario um, has a little more ammunition added to it by the events of the last couple of days. Thank you for bringing that up. Okay, now I promised the magic weapon. You, you think he should come up to the podium or just uh, oh, please, stand up? Yeah. I prefer you come to the podium if the microphone's still working. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, may I introduce President Trump's campaign advisor on trade, his transition team advisor on trade, and the member of the re-election of President Trump in 2020 advisor on trade, Curtis Ellis. It's a pleasure. Get, you don't get much time, though. I'm going to have to be mean to you. Okay. I did not prepare any remarks, so I will simply review <clears throat> what I've heard and just offer some um, my thoughts on this. Um, I appreciate uh, President Weinstein's <clears throat> uh, promise to free us of illusions of the past, and I think that's the most important thing we can do and probably the best way forward is to let's be free of the illusions of the past, one of which is that China is a market economy. I think China is no longer the weak sister. China is a accepted great power in the world. And uh, the system they have is not a free market system. It's socialism with Chinese characteristics, uh, in, which would mean, if we accept that, that we have every right to impose countervailing duties on subsidized goods, this is just the normal order of things. They don't need to be treated, uh, especially as a developing country, according to the WTO or in any kind of Paris climate accord, they're a major power, a major economy. So maybe that's one of the illusions of the past that we need to dispense with, uh, recognize China's true place in the world, which is one of greatness. Um, I wanted to note that uh, your, your presentation, your excellent presentation, uh, cited Moody's and other economic forecasts. Let's free ourselves of the illusion that these economic forecasts are in any way accurate. It was not that long ago when we were told we could never have more than 2% growth in America. That's been disproven. Uh, these economic forecasters never anticipated the crisis of the mortgage meltdown. No one saw that coming. Only a few people. So don't place too much stock in what Moody's or any of the other great economic forecasters tell us because we are in uncharted waters. Um, I found it interesting. Um, 
thank you. I, I, I don't want to just sit here and deliver one-liners, but um, I, I did find it amusing of uh, seeking to, uh, I, I appreciate the offer of Chinese uh, investment in Midwestern states that have been uh, in infrastructure that have been affected by deindustrialization, considering what the major cause of deindustrialization in those states was. Um, and <laughs> this is, uh, again, uh, in the, 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 eight, the 19th century in America's period of industrialization, we were facing the uh, model, the global model at that time was that Britain would be the workshop of the world the factory of the world. Today, it seems that China is the factory of the world. And I would say we should look to parallels as to how the US dealt with um, global economy at that time was the British Empire. China did not fare well in that setup. If now the global economy is going to be led by China, I don't know if the US is going to fare well in such a setup. Uh, let's dispense of another illusion that countries are not pursuing their national interest. Everybody is pursuing their national interest. They may talk about the global economy, but it is to the degree to which it helps their national interest. And I think if we recognize that, then we will find the path forward. And finally, let me just say this, and maybe a question I can put out there. Um, the last speaker talked about the reaction to the sanctions. I find it interesting the reaction a Chinese reaction to the tariffs that, pre that the administration put in effect, w those tariffs came, our tariffs came into effect after an investigation and were based on World Trade Organization uh, criteria, subsidies, intellectual property violations, et cetera, et cetera. There seems to be a general acceptance within the U.S. media that the tariffs that China put into effect were aimed at the Trump voter. And even one of your slides, you pointed to that. The base voter, the farmers, China Daily took out a huge ad insert in the Des Moines Register. There seems to be a blatant recognition that China is targeting its tariffs to interfere in our election. <laughs> so uh, I don't know if that's a WTO criteria for <laughs> imposing tariffs to influence another country's election, but... Uh, on that, I will uh, just leave it there. And of course, as uh, Dr. Pillsbury said, there is the question of the Chinese uh, credit card <laughs> and the American credit card situation. So as much as we talk about reform in China and, and, and agreements, uh, there's, China did agree in 2011 to open up uh, its credit card market, but nothing has happened. So anyway, thank you very much. I and if Henry yes. invites the Hudson delegation to come to Beijing, which we don't know yet, but if he does, would you be willing to come with us? Oh, yes, oh, thank certainly. You. <laughs> I, 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 I would love to. <laughs> thank you. No guarantees. <laughs> okay, questions from the floor for a few minutes, Henry? Sure. Mm -hmm. And then we go to panel two. We have to get up and change microphones. Mm -hmm. You want to call on, uh, oh, who's going to ask a question? 有不少的中国记者来参加。哦，你呢？你决定吧。Anybody here from Xinhua? I think we take Xinhua first. Okay, you are 
A Victor Lee, um, and uh, non-resident uh, senior fellow at CCG and also president of China Society. I have a question regarding uh, job. In President Trump, we're talking about uh, the importance of uh, get jobs back and the lost job to China like this. But right now, the employment rate is so low. So well, why is still this is a relevant issue? Thank you. We have a few. Okay. Jorgena. Uh, I have a question for Dr. Pillsbury uh, regarding the white uh, paper that China just released um, over the past few days. Um, I'm sure you've read it. Do you find the statistics and the arguments provided in the white paper are, are, are well-founded? Do you agree with the premises? And do you find it helpful in um, explaining the positions and policies of the Chinese government? I'll give you the answer of three no's. No, no, and no. <laughs> it, it does not move toward a constructive resolution of the trade dispute. It has some factual misinformation, and it did not address the main items in the USTR report of March 21st uh, this year, which has uh, more than 1,000 footnotes, uh, several hundred examples. Does not, it ignores it. Uh, it does not address uh, Peter Navarro's report on economic aggression, which he presented right here at this podium. It simply ignores these legitimate uh, criticisms issued by the White House, the executive office of the president. So in that sense, it's an insult to the White House to simply ignore all the work and testimony and research that's gone into these two presidential documents. You like my answer? <laughs> I'll take account in, uh, your answer. Green nose. Thank you. Okay. Lisanna. Um, Chris Scott from Asia Times, and unfortunately, I had a question about the more pessimistic scenario of a new Cold War. The news website Axios reported this week that the Trump administration is preparing a uh, administration-wide broadside against China, um, which would focus on um, calling them to account for cyber theft and election interference, which you mentioned. Um, also, I was wondering uh, what that might entail as um, uh, it was a question for anyone, Dr. Pillsbury, or um, anyone in the poll, who, what you might think that could entail. I read the Axios article. It said at the very end that Peter Navarro would be the main person to do this. I, I don't know if it's true or not. It's a leak, unauthorized leak from the White House. I think it's a good idea, though. It's learning a lesson from China's united front strategy to try to make your case to everybody and take some, you know, answer disagreements and then pull over your allies. So it's like the White House believes in united front uh, tactics. I think that's a good thing. But it's a leak, so I don't know if it's true. Any more? Fourth question. Hey, uh, I'm, I'm Bill Gauss with SE International, and, and I'm probably the only car maker in the room, I think. And I appreciate the emphasis on the uh, automotive and, and truck industries in your report. I, I did have a question. Can you clarify the 121 million car import number that you quoted? Did I misinterpret that in the presentation? 
There's about uh, 70 million vehicles of four tires or more built in the world each year total. So there, there's something amiss. I mean, if you could explain oh, that's right there. Mm -hmm. Chinese consumers bought 121 million cars imported from the U.S. So touching one. important because uh, uh, I, I think that uh, you know we we have to really work on with each other and rely on each other and and not really uh, having this uh, uh, very traditional even old style outdated uh, th thinking even cold war thinking on that <laughs> so because uh, I, I think that uh, uh, it's so obvious that you know people the people exchange between China and the US it's so so big now and uh, uh, so so US company is making 500 billion uh, revenues in China. That has been, you know, uh, 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 several several uh, uh, calculations have proven that. So, so I think that uh, you know now we are, we we've got to be very careful mm -hmm. not to really, uh, you know, have have some you know incident that we're going to re to deny everything that we already have achieved. Mm -hmm. I think you mentioned about uh, report 301, but as I just said in my report, one of the examples uh, that report cited. That uh, on on on, 19, uh, on the intellectual uh, uh, force technology transfer, but according to the Amgen survey, mm -hmm. it's only 19 percent. Mm -hmm. A company said they have something like that. Majority, you know, 81 percent didn't say they have any technology force technology force technology transfer, and then even out of this 19 percent said that, you know, two thirds of them said it's it's not related with the Chinese government. Mm -hmm. So. So I mean, so even uh, I think the White House report has to be accurate and punctual as well, so that we, I have we good, don't have. I a, have good news for you, Henry. Yeah, I, I actually read all the footnotes, mm. and a footnote like nine hundred and ninety. It's a, something you wrote. Your name is in there, Wang Huiyao. <laughs> Some kind like a book. So you are on the wrong side. You are on the White House side. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, no. no. <laughs> Maybe it's a similar name, Maybe, but it no, says no. Wang Huiyao. You no, know, cite I, you twice. No, I, I think that uh, you know we got to be uh, really accurate on those uh, mm -hmm. statistics. So, so I think that uh, it could be a mistake. Uh, yeah. So a, a dialogue likes to, to clarify to yes. really uh, exchange is really important. And that's, that's why that you, that's get... why you think think tanks have a role to play. That, that's right. Not yeah. official negotiations. No, no, no. Negotiations uh, is also important, but I think with, you know the in traction, addition to official yeah, negotiations. I, I think that uh, uh, get the but right now China will not come. You know they canceled the. Well, I, th I, I think nobody wants to come if, uh, if in this current situation, you know, people wants to come, then you hit them with a big uh, <laughs> state. <laughs> yes. You know, uh, I, I don't think anybody like that. So, so I think it's really, uh, we, we need have a, we have to have a, have a mutually respect, mm -hmm. respectful uh, situation that I think we can come with a dialogue. And and you and I both oppose a new Cold War, right? Ab we yeah, don't absolutely. We don't, we don't want to see a new Cold War. Yeah. I think you have some more questions. You want to have more questions or shall we go to panel two? It's already 11. We should go to panel two probably. Yeah. 
11.20. Yeah, we still have some time at this panel too. Um, yeah. Okay, thank you very much. We changed microphones. Good. We're going to continue our discussion of the report by CCG, the three scenarios and the policy proposals in the report about trying to resolve the U.S.-China trade dispute. Our first speaker today is a longtime fellow here at Hudson Institute, Ambassador Hussein Haqqani. He was formerly the ambassador of Pakistan to the United States. He's written two best-selling books with very provocative titles. One could apply to U.S.-China relations, he has said in the past himself. It's called Magnificent Delusions. I wish we had a copy to hold up, you know, to increase, and it has a new book as well. So Ambassador Haqqani, could you please offer us your Thank views? You. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Mike, and it's such a pleasure joining all of you. Thank you all for traveling uh, and, and, and pr making the presentation this morning. Uh, let me just begin by saying that the presentation this morning had three elements, uh, points on which we can actually find some convergence with the presentation. Uh, points uh, on which we are very clear uh, at Hudson that we disagree, and those are for future conversation. And then there are definitely points which are uh, points of contention, where uh, the narrative presented does not actually uh, match our perspective on those issues. So the presentation does uh, provide a basis for us to have future conversation, uh, but let me be frank, because when I served as ambassador, I start, decided that I'm going to invent a new school of diplomacy, uh, which is the candor school of diplomacy. <laughs> so tell the truth up front rather than beat about the bush. And that really helps move the discussion forward a lot more. Uh, there are many people in the United States and all over the world who admire China's accomplishments of the last few dec decades. Uh, no country in the world has uh, had the kind of transformation within one generation in the economic realm that China has had. And that is all something that people here acknowledge and appreciate. Uh, nobody says that you know, China's progress is unreal. Uh, nobody says that uh, uh, China has not uh, uh, contributed to global economic uh, growth. Um, there are uh, issues that have become the basis for this trade uh, confrontation. Uh, and those issues, essentially, uh, are not related to what China has been able to accomplish for itself. They are related to three important categories, in my opinion. Of, of criticisms of China's uh, uh, policies. The first is that uh, China is not transparent. Uh, the most important aspect of that, of course, is that there are two different political systems. Now, in the United States, we have a very open political system. And in this open political system, it was actually acknowledged in the presentation in a very uh, circuitous way, because the presentation said 60 American trade organizations have said this. So many congressmen have said that. Well, let's be very frank. If Mike Pillsbury and Arthur Herman and Hussein Haqqani were to show up in Beijing and say, OK, now we're going to find all those 20, 30, 40, or 50 trade organizations who disagree with one aspect or another of President Xi's policies, we would not be able to be able to get them together. 
we will not be able to lobby uh, the National People's Congress to sort of members of the National People's Congress to issue a state public statement saying we disagree with this, 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 and this aspect of the president's policy. You can do that in the United States. Now, that creates a major difference between the two systems. Uh, American uh, debates are transparent. American policies are transparent. And the process of policy making is quite transparent. And that transparency then leads to what I call the second point, which is China does not play fair. That is a presumption or an assumption or a fear at this end. Now, there are people in this country. Uh, Tom Friedman's latest uh, uh, column in the New York Times praises China, says America should actually give, give in to China for the following reasons, etc., etc. The reverse does not happen. And that basically enables the lack of transparency, enables China to make rules uh, that do not give the uh, a, a open, transparent society uh, the opportunity uh, to have a level playing field. And, and then, of course, there are the more specific is issues like coerced technology transfer. Uh, you insist that everybody has to have a joint venture, companies especially with technology, uh, and then you coerce them in one form or another to actually transfer that technology uh, to you, uh, thereby denying the American companies the advantage of innovation, uh, and not only American companies, others. Um, cyber intrusion, uh, which again is not playing by the rules. Uh, and there are many other factors uh, of, of, of how uh, China's companies, many of them are state-owned. Because they are state-owned, they have certain advantages that totally privately-owned American companies can never have. So China's lack of transparency, number one, one basket of critiques. Second basket of critiques, China's uh, reluctance uh, to sort of play by the same or similar rules. So, 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 the, so the fear that China does not play fair because of that. The third, I would argue, is that, that the end of the presentation had the term that we should not let strategic misjudgment. Now, I would have some contention with that term, because the Americans don't think our judgment on, on, on the strategic issues is misjudgment. It's China's characterization of it. The American side and America's allies would say that this is our judgment. And why is that judgment? I would say that that judgment also comes partly because of the lack of transparency in the argumentations and the presentations. And I think the Chinese side needs to make a greater effort at explaining some of its decisions and judgments and policies. Just to give you an example, one of our colleagues, uh, Dr. Pandey, in the, morning se in the earlier session, talked about some of the moves in the Indian Ocean. Now, those moves are not purely economic by any stretch of the imagination. Maldives an economy of only 4 billion. China's attention to the Maldives is disproportionate to the size of the economy, totally disproportionate to the size of the economy. Investment in its politics. And, um, uh, the only explanation, at least looking from here, seems to be that the Maldives can then offer a potential uh, offset uh, to uh, Western uh, bases in Diego Garcia. And therefore, it provides a platform for future Indo-Pacific uh, military or naval rivalry. Now, if that is not the Chinese intent, and I'm prepared to concede the possibility that the word, world of intents is not something that you can actually 
uh, sort of imagine uh, without looking at what's happening. So you have to have an explanation for why you do that. Why do you want a port in Sri Lanka, which is not economically sustainable? Hub and Tota, which the Chinese have had to take over. The port of Gawadar on the, on, on, the, uh, on, the, on the Makran coast in Pakistan, which is going to put Chinese, uh, Chinese vessels within very close reach of the uh, Persian um, uh, Gulf, the Arab Gulf countries. Um, uh, so some of the, if, if, if you're going to talk only in economic and trade terms, then economic and trade decisions usually are about certain dimensions of gain and profit. And, and if your ostensibly economic decisions cannot be sustained or justified purely on economic grounds, then that raises strategic questions. And those strategic questions need to be answered beyond being said, no, 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 that's just your imagination. No, 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 that's just your fear. They need to be addressed. They need to be discussed. And they need to be discussed much more openly. So I would say that, uh, uh, you know, it's very interesting. Uh, this morning it was said that the Chinese are very flexible, and that's true. Uh, uh, you know, it was a very good enlightening uh, sort of uh, 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 illustration that was given that, you know, a person is a Confucianist when he's in government, a Taoist uh, when he's out of government, and a Buddhist at the, uh, at, at the sunset of his life. But it also seems to many in America that China's flexibility exists mainly when it benefits China. The flexibility does not, and, and the term mutual benefit also often means that it's mutual benefit that will benefit one side more. That may be a wrong and erroneous impression. But if that is the impression, an effort needs to be made by us collectively to try and address that. Why is it there? What, what causes it? Uh, China sometimes is a developing country or presents itself as a developing country. Sometimes it is a, a, the engine of global economic growth. And sometimes it is a major global power. So that's a bit, you know, Confucianist at one point, Taoist at one point, Buddhist at one point. So are you a developing country? Are you an emerging world power? Or are you a, uh, a, a major contributor to global economic growth? Or are you all three of, the same, of them at the same time? In which case, uh, the Americans do have the right to say, you cannot have all the advantages of being a developing country while at the same time getting ready to become our uh, peer as a strategic competitor. And I think those are valid criticisms and questions that need to be uh, addressed. I think I have more or less summarized and set the stage for Arthur uh, to take the ball forward and maybe take it all the way across the finishing line. Oh, across the finishing line. That's quite an ambition, ambitious goal. I have one quick question for you, though, Ambassador Ambassador. Your um, school of candor diplomacy, how many students have you <laughs> been able to enroll in that? We're all very it's eager a, to find it's, out. It's, 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 it's a difficult one, but enrollment is open. Enrollment is open. <laughs> there we are. There we are. I, I can only encourage. I can encourage more enrollees and more graduates in time. Uh, I'm Arthur Herman, senior <clears throat> fellow here, colleague of uh, my friends Mike Pillsbury and Ambassador Hakani. It's a pleasure to be here. A pleasure also to have you here as our guests uh, and to be part of this ongoing discussion. Uh, on this and very author important of eight books, right? A minimum nine, of eight, nine books. Nine? Author of nine books. Nine books <laughs> and uh, and director of the of the Hudson's uh, Quantum Alliance Institute. 
Um, what I want to talk about is this issue from the angle that I know best, which is in the area of advanced technologies, and also from my perspective as an historian, which is what uh, most of my books have been about. And um, from the historian's perspective, I would say that what we are experiencing right now in the area of US-China relations is part of a historical process that's been unfolding since, I would say, 1850. That from 1850 to 1950, um, that the Asia, the history of Asia, and in many cases, large part of global history was affected by the decline of China. Um, and that what we've seen from 1950 into the present has been the disruptive effects of the rise of China, which has provided ways to displace and to disrupt the patterns of international behavior and norms, including in trade, which had been established and which the other nations of the world were comfortable with during that long stretch, and, and assumptions that were built during that long stretch in which the real key issue that everyone had to face uh, was what to do about China's decline. Now the issue that the world faces is what to do about China's rise. What we've noticed, I think, in that process of China's rise as a great power has been a shift in emphasis in the last, oh, I would say decade or so, but that has really come into central focus uh, with President Xi, and that is of, the, of China's desire to rise not merely as a, as a global uh, presence, but as a global dominant presence. And to really think of China now as coming into its own and succeeding the uh, Pax Americana that had been established since World War II under the leadership and to a large extent under the military aegis of the United States, and that what is to emerge now will be a Pax Sionica, uh, in which China will become sort of, let's say, the dominant presence uh, with a similar well, broad beneficial effect on the rest of the world, but particularly a beneficial effect for China. Now, that's my perspective as an historian. From my perspective as a policy analyst, where I see this uh, approach most clearly with regard to the pursuit of global dominance is in the area of advanced technologies, what we call high tech. And what I have been watching over the last four years uh, as I analyze the trends that have been taking place in this area, but particularly in the area of artificial intelligence, quantum technology, supercomputers, uh, microchips, uh, advanced wireless technology, is, is that China has developed and, and, and should be, and I think it should be admired for, developing a grand strategy with regard to these technologies. And the United States is only belatedly waking up to the fact that China has a grand strategy, and the United States now, now needs to start thinking about a grand strategy of its own. Because what we find ourselves in now, thanks to China's uh, aggressive pursuit of dominance in these areas, is we now find ourselves in what I termed in an article that ran last month in National Review, is a war, a conflict for high-tech supremacy which in many ways parallels the race for high tech, for naval supremacy between Great Britain and Germany on the eve of World War I, uh, in which a challenging revisionist power uh, 
tried to establish the kind of supremacy in that vital area uh, to over a country or in, in, in to displace a country which had for more than a century enjoyed that naval dominance and maritime supremacy. Now, this is a conflict or a contest or a race for high-tech supremacy that we now have, find ourselves in with China and the United States, which I believe China can't win. But I think it is also a contest in which, as with the contest for naval supremacy between Great Britain and Germany, in which both countries could be losers. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, first of all, what we see from the point of view of where China is, is an enormous, a pattern of enormous public investment as well as private investment in certain key areas of high technology. I go through the numbers in my article in National Review, so I won't review them, spend a lot of time uh, going over it with you, but I would just point to a couple of areas. One is artificial intelligence, in which President Xi uh, and the CCP has announced a, that, that they will spend $150 billion in order to bring, make China a, an artificial intelligence-driven society by 2030. Um, in the area of quantum technology, we have uh, right now a bill here in Congress, which has now been submitted to the Senate, which I had a little bit of role to help to shape. You didn't on, lobby. You didn't on, lobby. I didn't lobby, but I, I helped to sort of background information, information for it. <laughs> Uh, and for the, for the coalition of companies that were involved in it, uh, a bill to spend $1.3 billion over the next 10 years to foster quantum technology. What we know is that China is spending $10 billion to develop a quantum research and technology center, um, which uh, uh, is going to have applications which China is not at all ashamed to admit will have important ones for the PLA and also for PLAN. Uh, we know that, by, that uh, uh, Alibaba has committed to spend also $10 billion in the areas of high tech, including quantum as well as artificial intelligence. Baidu has also committed similar funding to go into this area. Uh, our funding for uh, the House bill, $1.3 billion, is about in line with what companies like IBM and Intel and Microsoft are spending in this area. So these are two areas in which, fundamentally, uh, China's outspending us about 10 to 1, 10 to 1 in these, in these areas, both of which have enormous implications, not just from an economic standpoint, in terms of really sort of gearing societies into the into the into the advanced technology age, to the post-digital age, in the case of quantum, but also have enormous national security implications at the same time. The challenge that China is going to face are twofold, however, as they race down this line towards, these, towards gaining foothold and global dominance in these technologies. The first is the United States is bound to respond. The United States, and it is beginning to respond. Uh, it's beginning to respond also in the trade area. And in my, from my perspective, these issues that you've all been discussing so intelligently and correctly in the area of trade, to mine, is subsumed under larger geopolitical and grand strategic areas. And uh, we saw this, for example, 
with regard to the suspension of sale of microchips to ZTE earlier this spring, which had a devastating effect on ZTE's um, supply chain. In fact, ZTE sort of said, we're going to have to close, close some, some parts of our business because we can't get those semi, semiconductors. It's very interesting. Now, that ban was lifted later on as part after, of the two and President Xi called President Trump, right? right? That's right. As part of the to and fro with regard to what we're, we characterize as a trade war. But it did, I think, to a certain degree, reveal both an element, an unexpected element of Chinese vulnerability in this area, both in an economic but also in a strategic sense. But it also revealed the fact the United States is aware of what's going on. And although the spending has not accelerated to match, and I don't think it necessarily has to match what China is doing, the United States is beginning to realize that this is a race for high-tech supremacy that it does not want to lose. And it will do what it takes in order to make sure it doesn't lose its leadership in, in, in information technology <coughs> and other high-tech areas. But there's also a second reason why I think China, the challenge that China faces, and that is, is that a lot of the push uh, that China is, is under, has gotten underway in this area is done through government and involves uh, state-owned enterprises and enterprises which have become fully integrated in terms of its goals and aims with those of the CCP and the Chinese government. Uh, as one Chinese uh, IT executive said recently, our interests are fused together. Now, you can get a lot of synergy that way in high-tech areas by having the goals of government and the goals of industry fused together. There can be a lot that can be accomplished that way. But there's also a lot that can get in the way of development of advanced technologies when innovation and entrepreneurship is, shall we say, restricted or limited by large-scale public enterprises and, model and goals that are set uh, by government officials as opposed to by company executives and by engineers and, other, and scientists and others who are really the driving force behind high-tech change and, and behind high-tech industries here. Now, I'm not predicting that out of this fusion will come uh, a, what, what, what should I call it? I'll call it a Lysenko moment, when the government begins to sort of dictate, this is the direction you're going to go, these are the sci and these are also the scientific and engineering principles that you're going to follow in ways that Chinese companies uh, like Baidu or like uh, Huawei or ZTE will have no choice, no choice but to, to participate even, even though perhaps their scientists and engineers will tell them behind closed doors, this isn't gonna work, this is a dead end. The Americans are actually, or the Europeans are actually moving in directions that are more beneficial. Is there some way we can work with them? And it turns out because of the grand strategic goals that are involved here that it's not possible to achieve that. And that's the third element I think challenges are gonna face. We're talking about everything in threes today, aren't we? And that is, is that the degree to which China's push for global dominance in these high-tech areas will begin more and more to close the possibilities for international cooperation and collaboration. That it'll become more challenging for those countries who, like the United States, the United States is an example, but it's not the only one, who began to realize that cooperation with Chinese in the, China in these areas is, be, is more and more of a win-lose Proposition: Win for China, lose for China's collaborators. Um, this is not a happy situation. Um, 
And I think that if we were going to reverse this process, and my, my final remarks on this, if we're going to wind down this contest or race for high-tech supremacy. Or a marathon. Or a marathon. I think what we need to do is to f perhaps make China realize, make China's leadership realize that the liberal inter international order, which has governed trade and economic relations around the globe since World War II, which the United States was instrumental in building and supporting, is an international order that was not constructed in order to thwart China's destiny. It was not one that was built in order to uh, advance uh, US national interests at the expense of others. But it was, in fact, an international, liberal international order which China has enormously benefited from. That China's rise as a global economy would be impossible without that order, which it now seeks to challenge or, in many places, displace. And is, in fact, if you read uh, my colleague Mike Pillsbury's book, The 100-Year Marathon, one of the important themes of that book is precisely the degree to which the United States worked tirelessly to encourage economic growth for China, to make China into an economic player in, on the global stage, and that the degree to which it, I'm going to use the expression, feather-bedded the relationship with China in order to encourage China's economic growth to make it rise and make it part of that international order. And this explains, I think, to a degree why we get the reaction now from the Trump administration, from Peter Navarro and others, and so on, is the feeling that we've done a lot for China, and China doesn't seem to respond to that in terms of reciprocal relationships. That the, that the, that the discrepancies and the asymmetries that Ambassador Haqqani pointed out limited, limits abil America's ability to continue down this path. And it's time for us to gain back some of the uh, advantages that we willingly gave away in those years, starting in the late 80s. And it's now time to, now time to rethink that relationship. I don't think that's, by the way, <clears throat> I think in the short term, it's an understandable and perhaps justifiable. In the long term, however, the future lies with US-China cooperation. But it has to be, it has to be on a very different basis than where we are now. And the area of high-tech uh, systems <clears throat> and of advanced technologies is where I think we need to make some serious breakthroughs if this isn't going to be not a win-lose proposition and not a win-win proposition, but a lose-lose proposition. OK, thank you. Professor, I'm going to depart, and I sit next to Professor Tong. Ambassador Hakani asked earlier if he could depart as part of the Candor Diplomacy School for a previous engagement. Okay. All right, so. Professor Tong, you are the final major today. All right, so um, thank you very much for having me here. First time to Hassan, beautiful office space. And also thank you, Dr. Wang, for creating this opportunity to have this rational and mutually respectful dialogues uh, between the Hudson experts and also uh, experts from China. Um, so I'm sort of in between. I've been teaching at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies for the last five years. I traveled to China a lot. I was born and raised in Hong Kong. I got my postgraduate education at MIT, so you know I have realized that I'm sort of stuck in between. 
uh, when I think about the U.S.-China relations and trade war in particular. Um, but let me do something that is more neutral, and that is my expertise. Um, I'm an economist. I was a trained economist, and also realized that I'm the only economist uh, among the 10 people on the panels. Uh, so I'm going to do something that uh, I'm, I'm relatively better at, which you know, I would teach my students as comparative advantage. So my comparative advantage is to talk about facts, look at some numbers, and tell you about sort of the uh, current situation about global trade rather than just trade between China and the US specifically. Teaching at size for the last five years, I have interacted with a lot of people who talked about grand strategies, dependency theory, and many other interesting topics in IR. So I have some opinion about that, but I would like to share those later during the Q&A. And for now, just bear with me. I'm going to spend five minutes talking about facts. All right. So we live in a world of global value chains, which economists will call GVC. Okay? Um, trade is very different from what David Ricardo would describe uh, about trade 200 years ago. Right? So in his classic book, he would say, this is wine for cloth. Right? You know, the British is best at producing cloth, while the Portuguese are best at producing wine. So they trade, and they benefit from trade. Today, we don't see that much of final goods trade anymore. Trade is largely about trade of intermediate inputs. All right, just to give you some numbers, two-thirds of global trade is trade of intermediate inputs. All right, automobile parts, electronic components, stuff that you will find inside an iPhone rather than an iPhone itself. Talking about the US, one-third of import from the rest of the world, not only from China, from the rest of the world, is within the firm boundary of multinational firms, right? So many of which are imported by Apple, by uh, you know, other multinationals uh, with headquarters in the US, all right? So those are facts that we should keep in mind when we talk about the US-China trade war. So based on this new phenomenon of global trade, I think there are at least four implications. So I'm going to violate the rule of talking about three. So there are four implications about you know, how GVC will affect our interpretations of the current situation. So the first one, which has been highlighted and emphasized by the Trump administration a lot, is the US has been running a huge bilateral trade deficit against China. So I don't think that claim is correct. But let me tell you why, uh, as a trade economist, why I think uh, that statement is just incorrect. So first of all, if you just use growth trade flows as the basis to compute bilateral trade deficits or surpluses, the numbers are going to be biased in the following way. And I'm going to give you an example, and you will see why you know, the current way of measuring trade surplus or biases, are, uh, trade surplus or deficits, are incorrect. Many of you are using iPhones. When the US customs try to record an import item from China to the US, the iPhone will come as a product that is worth $500 trade deficit, right? So between US and China. But within an iPhone, you realize that a lot of components and parts are actually coming from US allies in the region, in particular, Japan and Korea. So that $500 value is already biased upward in the sense that there has been a lot of double counting in the value of trade from China to the US, right? So there is a wonderful research done by Rob Johnson, who used to be at Dartmouth, uh, also an economic professor, who estimated that the bilateral deficit between US and China has been inflated 
by about 40% or zero, right? So if you have the correct way to measure trade flows using the term value added, then the value added trade deficit between US and China is still pretty big, but is 40% less than what has been reported uh, by the US government or on the news. So related to this point, I also want to emphasize that even you take away the 40%, the trade deficit that has been on, on the news has been overestimated because first of all, surface trade has been totally ignored in the measures of bilateral trade, right? So US has a comparative advantage in surface exports. Many Chinese students come to the US to get their education. That is surface export from US to China. But surprisingly, there's no way to record those kind of surface exports from the US to China in the current trade accounts. And the final point about trade deficits is US firms has been establishing a lot of affiliates inside China and selling to the Chinese customers. Because those transactions did not cross the US-China trade border, those numbers do not also uh, get recorded in the US-China trade uh, deficit, all right? So that's my first point about you know, why we should think hard about global value chains and the implications on one of the most important policy de debate, which is about trade deficit between China and the US. The second implication is related to the effectiveness of US tariffs on China, all right? So it is very natural to think about or justify why the US government has put tariffs on the so-called high-tech or strategic products. Many of them are being mentioned by the Chinese government in the Made in China 2025. But if you look at those products, those exports from China had a huge US content, partly because the US firms have been investing a lot in those supply chains, which happened had the final stage being produced in China. It also because you know, many of them actually had foreign components from other advanced economies once again, Japan and Korea. So if the Trump administration is going to put tariffs on those sort of high-tech R&D intensive products, it is going to be very ineffective in affecting the Chinese economy. And there will be a huge pass-through to the US allies in the region, including Japan and Korea. So let me talk about uh, my third point, which is um, the effect of Chinese imports on the US labor market. Right? So in my trade class, I will talk about the benefits from trade, but I will, I will also talk about the winners and losers in globalization. So don't get me wrong, I think a lot of people lost their jobs during the last two decades, partly due to globalization, but also partly due to technological change. But to blame China or Chinese trade on the US uh, labor market, I think is a bit exaggerated, all right? So there's a famous paper with a very provocative title called The Chinese Syndrome, inspired by the famous movie Chinese, China Syndrome in the 1970s. And the authors of the papers, a famous economist from MIT and UC San Diego, would argue that the so-called China shock led to substantial manufacturing job losses in the US. And what they didn't consider is first, global value chains, and second, exports from the US to China. Subsequent studies done by also very distinguished trade economists, one of them being Rob Pinsler at UC Davis, take a first step to basically incorporate export from US to China and realize that the net effect of 
U.S.-China trade on the U.S. labor market is basically zero. There's no gain, low losses in terms of U.S. jobs. And there's another study done by another distinguished trade economist called Shenjin Wei at Columbia Business School. And he finds that you know, once you incorporate I.O. linkages, input-output linkages, there's actually a small net positive effect on the U.S. labor market. All right? So I'm just telling you the facts. I don't know which one I should take, but I think the China Syndrome paper only capture part of the story. All right. So I made three points. Uh, I think I have a fourth one, uh, which is about my own research, yes. So how should we think about uh, the economic losses of the U.S.-China trade war? We don't have the estimates or the required uh, statistics to quantify the actual impacts yet because we still have to wait for the U.S. commerce and also the Chinese customs to offer the data about trade and many other macroeconomic variables. But I have done my own research using something that you can download online right away, which is the financial market performance of publicly listed firms in the U.S. and also in China. So let me briefly summarize. Uh, let me briefly tell you the results of that new research. <clears throat> so we look at the surprise on March 22nd when Trump announced um, sort of the first uh, trade war type uh, instruments on 50 billion Chinese imports into the U.S. Right? So from today's perspective, it's a small number, but at that time, the number surprised many uh, investors. Between March 21st and March 23rd, Dow Jones and Nasdaq declined by about, by about 4.5%. Right? So you can argue, well, this is not the right number to think about the effect on the U.S. economy because you know, investors tend to overreact and you know, financial market didn't really capture the real economy. But that is the best we can do, right? Because those are the only data that we can look at to think about the expected e impact on the U.S. economy. So what we did further is you know, to look at firms that are exposed to U.S.-China trade in terms of importing stuff from China or exporting final goods or services to, to China. Firms that are more exposed tend to experience a more negative decline in the financial market outcomes measured by stock price, bond returns, and also default risk. And more important than this, firms that are indirectly exposed to U.S.-China trade meaning they don't trade directly with China, but their suppliers buy stuff from China or the customers rely on businesses in China, that indirect effect is even larger than the direct effect. And this is also true for China, right? So this is a lose-lose situation which can be captured uh, by focusing on looking at the impact on each country's financial market. If you're interested, I'm happy to share the paper with you and give you more specifics but let me conclude by saying that um, the U.S.-China trade war has created a lose-lose situation already, in addition to a lot of uncertainty that investors didn't like. Again, I speak as an economist. You know, I have some other ideas about you know, why this may or may not be right. But I think you know, isolating China and potentially create a possibility for a new Cold War is not going to be constructive for the U.S.-China relations in the long run, but also for the global uh, stability in the long run. Henry Kissinger, who is a good friend of size, has proposed to engage China in the 1970s. Recently, he has been quite quiet about the U.S.-China relations, but I wonder what he would think. 
But if he thought 1970s was the right time to engage China, I'm not sure why this is the right time to isolate China. Thank you. Okay, Henry, you want to take some more questions? Yeah, we can do that. Yes, sure. I have one for Professor Tang. Um, just like Professor Jia, you ignored the report. It's a topic, <laughs> a topic today. And I checked the nine people who wrote the report. You're not one of them. Uh, one and of they them. don't, the report does not cite your research. Because it was too new. Um, so, so when they wrote the report, maybe my paper was not finished yet. So would you want to tell us if you agree with anything in this report or nothing or? I agree with most of it. Most um, of it. So, so, you've, so you've read it. I, I read it. Well, I read it not deliberately. You're not deliberately snubbing this report today. So I, read it, I didn't read all the footnotes like you did, but I read very quickly about the main content. And okay. let me say one thing which is consistent with the big picture of the report. China did benefit a lot by getting into the WTO, all right? Um, you know, whether they win double of what US won or whatever is another question, and I'm happy to talk about that. <clears throat> but one thing that China benefited from accessing to the WTO is it, WTO created external pressure for the Chinese government to push through privatization uh, around 2000. So China has been sort of taking advantage of joining international organizations to induce domestic reforms, which is good for the Chinese economy, but also for the rest of the world. So I think, you know, by dueling or responding to the US-China trade war, there could be another possibility for the Chinese government to impose some of the uh, domestic reforms that have been uh, uh, delayed uh, and, you know, tackle some of the political constraints that uh, did not allow them to uh, be faster in pushing those reforms. I teach a course of graduate students on a Chinese strategy. I just wanted to invite you to be a guest lecturer in, our, in this class. Because I don't think they've heard this point of view before. So which school do you teach? Institute of World Politics. OK, I'm happy to do it. Yeah. Thank you. As long as it's not Josh Tang, which is our competitor. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> OK, Henry, you want to call on the questions? Yeah, we could probably have a few minutes if we have any questions that, uh, sure, yes. Thank you uh, to the most recent speaker. How do you explain no that the stock market, the Dow Jones average, has reached record highs in the last week if, this, if the trade war has been adversely affecting businesses in the United States, like you say? Yeah, so um, just by looking at the market performance, there are many factors that can affect you know, stock market index. Whether there's a bubble or not, I don't even know. Uh, but what we looked at is when the announcement was made, what happened to the stock market? And by now, I think most of the publicly listed, publicly listed firms in the US already digested the news. There's already a US-China trade war. So further announcements about tariffs on China is, is not going to affect the expectations anymore. The reason why we focus on March 22nd is because there was the first major announcement about putting tariffs on China. And that was a surprise. And financial economists love surprises in their studies. Uh, and now there's no longer surprise that there will be another wave of tariffs. So at least the firms are not responding. There may be other factors that drive uh, the stock market performance. As what Trump has said, maybe the strong uh, US uh, job market has encouraged 
some of the investors to go back to the stock market again. After the final question is asked, I'm going to ask our CEO, President of Hudson, to say the final words. Any more questions? There seem to be a lot of questions over here on this side. For you, I think, Professor John. Mm -hmm. There's maybe for Arthur. Thank you very much. Actually, I'm from your competitor at Georgetown. I'm from Georgetown University. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, but I'm curious on the issue of intellectual property, uh, because you didn't mention much of it, and I, I, and I, and I wanted to get your views on it. And also, I was actually quite surprised uh, 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 in the uh, uh, CCG report on intellectual property where there was so little, let's say, complaint about it, and so little uh, seemed concerned about it from American companies. And I'm wondering if it's like having to do with surveys here in the US. Sometimes people answer or they don't answer, but they don't necessarily answer truthfully. In other words, if I'm a Ch an American company in China, uh, and I, my, my situation is one that I could be very badly hurt if I say, yeah, I really do have complaints about intellectual property, but I'm going to remain mum about it because I just don't want to hurt you know, the situation that I have. So it strikes me that maybe the numbers that you have are low. How low, I actually don't know, but they could be affected by coercion, you know, from the top, saying, no, I don't want you to be telling the truth on this. I want you to sell it that, say that everything is really perfectly good, you know, relative to the intellectual property. So I'd like to kind of tease out from both of you or from anybody else on this intellectual property issue, because your results were quite surprising to me. Mm -hmm. Okay, maybe I could, <coughs> could add on that. And uh, I, I think for the business community, there's about six, 68,000 U.S. company set up in China operating. It's really a, a, a market decision, economic decision for them to enter China. You know, whether it's in JV form, format, which is WTO allowed it uh, to give China that kind of a, a arrangement uh, in the past. And then, you know, if those business companies not making money there, why on earth they're still there? Uh, why are they making this kind of company? So, so uh, f furthermore, the the, the the survey was conducted year by year, and in in a, in a, you know, there's, is a, is not a, uh, it's a random uh, you know uh, survey without your names revealed. So it's a secret ballot. So they they, they don't you know they don't have to hide for the U.S. chambers uh, of their entity. So so I think that's really reflect the situation. So uh, so I think that uh, the U.S. company has a. Willingly or benefited, if you know they can sell their technology, they can use the JV to exchange for market uh, occupation. Nobody forced them to be there or to do the China, like the transfer. Like, like Chinese leaders said many times, that can you tell me who did that? I'm going to punish them. Well, there's nobody said that. As I said in my report, you know, 80% of the foreign company complained they got their case wind if they you know took that rule. So. So there, I think there's over uh, exaggeration of uh, forced technology transfer. I don't where you know that is where it's coming from. If you talk about JV, which there there is a JV requirement uh, from the WTO days, you know this could be discussed again through a BIT, which is already touching those issues through the uh, you know potential uh, trade talks that we can uh, talk about this. But even for JV, it was on a willing basis. If somebody wants to do that, they can always refuse to do, or if they want to do. There might be one case or two cases of companies which use the name of a government, but it's not the Chinese government intention to deliberately do that. So, so I think there's a lot of uh, uh, explanation needs to be made. <laughs> and uh, so, so that, that's why. But finally, I would like to say uh, just a few words just to maybe uh, conclude on my, my, my thought on that is, 
You know, we're getting the globalization uh, now for the last seven decades. I think the U.S. has been really leading that, in the setting up the United Nations, WTO, World Bank, IMF, China actually joined all those organizations. It's really an add-on support. China doesn't want to you know, disrupt the, the current system or, uh, and do anything uh, uh, very different. I think uh, you know, China is really, uh, for the last uh, four decades, you know, this year is the 40 years of diplomatic ties with the U.S. It's also, co not coincidentally, it's also 40 years of Chinese opening up. It's largely opening to the U.S., actually. So, so actually, U.S. company has benefited so much, so has China. And also, this kind of relationship, trade relationship, have helped China lift you know, 800, 800 million people out of poverty. That's an enormous contribution to the world. We don't want to see China become a North Korea or become Iran, which is you know, posing threat to the world. You know, China is really doing its own work. I mean, of course, China uh, have its own 5,000 years history. They have its own system. There is always a, a uniqueness of Chinese culture. So, so but as long as this system is working, why, why are we trying to you know, greatly <laughs> change that? I think there's a lot of uh, things that maybe there's a you know, misunderstanding, there's a lot of enough communication, there's not enough think tank talks. Uh, of course, China made mistakes too in the past, and, and uh, so has the US. But I don't think that after seven decades of the peace power prosperity, we want to make the number one economy and number two economy fighting a, a trade war. You know, these days we cannot afford, afford to fight military war, but even fighting trade war is really dangerous and, and devastating. So Trump is a businessman. I mean, he's a great businessman. He he knows how business is good. So if he wants to, he, if he wants to make America great again, you know, China is a great partner. It's, you know, for example, President Trump wants to spend a trillion dollars on the infrastructure. In the last decade, in the last ten years, China spent eleven trillion. China's developed the fastest, you know, most advanced infrastructure in the world, and that kind of expertise and, and capital can be helping the U.S. So I don't I don't see the reason why the two countries really gets ugly on, on, on those issues, but, but really turn into advantage. I think maybe it's a wake-up call this time now with the trade war, and it's great that uh, those countries look at the positions and, and make an adjustment and trying to get uh, uh, forward for, the, for the both countries' benefit and for the world. So, so I think that uh, you know, all, all the talks this morning is really great. We appreciate the, the, the Hudson uh, hosting uh, this dialogue, and also we have the advisor from Trump administration to, 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 to join us. But I think uh, he also just mentioned that China was maybe the trade war unwillingly taught, you know, or, or hurted the U.S. soybean or Midwest. But, you, but U.S. sanctions also aimed at the China 2025 for, for the future technology advancement. So there's, there's a, you know, a bit of a, a, a tit for tat everything there. But I, but I don't think it's really China was, doesn't want to fight the trade war, as China said again and again. You know, they're just forced to have to, <laughs> to do something. But I, but, I, but I think, you know, U.S. as the number one economy, as, as a leader of the, of the free world, and, uh, and also the, 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 the world, world uh, champ, uh, uh, international, um, you know, uh, governance system establisher should really has the responsibility, even though, uh, you know, to get along all the countries together and then make uh, the world great again. I, I think Okay, that, but do uh, you understand my position? I, sure. I'm very disappointed the CCG report and the Chinese government are denying and not dealing with President Trump's reports and concerns. This is dangerous. It's insulting to the White House, and we're going down the wrong path. So if this is I, all I, not I, I an a, issue, yeah. you're talking about adding fuel to the fire. No, the US well, China, no I don't think... Uh, U.S.-China new Cold War. 
Yeah. So oh, nobody careful. wants to see that. Be but, careful. Yeah. The Americans put out a lot of material. Yeah. No. What's I mean, wrong? That's you know the 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 including, food. including on, on no. intellectual property. It's Deception, no. lying, cheating. These are very serious. Well, I, 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 I disagree on that. But forty. Now he says President Xi Jinping is his friend, and yeah. the two of them are going to work this out. Sure. Yeah. So I think what your report is doing is suggesting. Mm. Here's some of the terms that could be discussed. That's right. But but, please but don't deny the whole. Problem. No, no, no. I'm not denying. I, 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 what I'm saying is my from my perspective, and also. Otherwise, you get nothing of coming to Hudson today. Yeah. I'm trying to <laughs> educate no, you. I, I think, think it's a dialogue. Yeah. I think the report did admit that there are room for improvement in the Chinese institutions. So it's not like you know there's. I, I think we have China's a, already a perfect uh, economy. President, President Einstein, uh, please yeah. save us. Yeah. From to, a, to, to conclude the win from a lose lose situation. No, yeah, exactly. Look, I, I want to uh, thank our the delegation from CCG. I want to thank uh, Dr. Wang. I want to thank uh, our Hudson colleagues, uh, particularly the uh, chair of our the director of our Center for Chinese Strategy, Mike Pillsbury, Arthur Herman, our other Hudson colleagues. This has been a uh, an absolutely fascinating discussion. As a I uh, was remarking outside the meeting room for a few moments, chatting with a journalist who said, these kind of people never appear together on panels. <laughs> and uh, I think that we have achieved that. There is a long way to go, however, in trying to resolve this dispute. And I, I agree fully with what uh, Mike has said about uh, the need for China really to come to grips with the uh, concerns of the Trump administration in order to make progress. And I look forward to reviewing the study. And I look forward to Hudson coming back with a response to the 14 uh, points of the CCG study and uh, continuing the dialogue going forward. This has been a very useful exercise, a very useful first step. But further steps need to be made. And I want to, again, thank everyone for uh, being here, for taking part, and for an enlightening uh, discussion. Thank you.